FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. If my welcome to giant robot FM wasn't as boisterous as it usually is, that's because I am under siege. I put my daughter to sleep 13 minutes ago. I'm right next door, and I, I'm, I'm fearful for my life if she wakes up. There'll be hell to pay. So I'm hoping Stephen Hero's typically loud voice doesn't break through the walls and wake her up. PMC, would you say my voice is loud? Do I talk an octave too high? All right, all right Steve. I'm going to make, a, as, as the person who edits this podcast, I'm going to make a full confession. Your your intro, your podcast intro, you speak like louder than literally everything else you say on the podcast. Like literally <laughs> everything else for the rest of the podcast, you will say quieter. And then- I, I, have to, I have to get psyched up. So what I do is I run a compressor filter over your whole audio track- and then I run it. I run it again, but over everything past the intro, so that everything scales up to what you say at the intro. <laughs> this is Giant Robot FM, <laughs> your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Is that better, PMC? I mean, you know, I, I maybe I'll have to tune that up too. We'll see. We'll see. It's it's audio is haunted. Let me tell you. Now, fair points all around, though. <laughs> of course, I'm joined, as always by pmc trilogy pmc this is my favorite time to record it's nighttime it's raining out a bit the vibes are excellent it's very cozy i know and we're just short of of uh, of falling back i believe our european friends have already departed summertime but we have another week of daylight savings before we uh return to standard time yes and we're recording with someone in the uk on monday We'll see if we manage to synchronize those times correctly. <laughs> I'm hopeful. There, there was a subtext to why I was bringing that up, which is like, oh yeah, scheduling things internationally is always delightful around this time of year. <laughs> Speaking of crapshoots, that's usually on me, Stephen Hero. But we are not alone. We are joined by an East Coast friend, Andy, aka Engine Veer Online. Andy, welcome back to the pod. Thank you guys for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be here. Andy, um, I was thinking about you earlier, um, independent of the podcast record, I was running a three mile outside, I was like, Andy's going to be on the podcast, I want to do him, I'm going to honor him on this run, so I fired up Sure Promise, and I wrapped up my three miles with uh, that kick-ass big O-tune. We should really play Sure Promise every time you're on the podcast. Oh, sure, absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. Andy, that, that's definitely the vibe and the, the medley to get you through something hard, for sure, that, that's where all the energy comes from. Classic workout track. So many good mecha <laughs> mecha pieces. I, I'm I'm watching uh, slowly Gal Gaigar. I got to put some Kohei Tanaka into my workout mix. Mm. I need to put some Mick Gordon in mine. Uh, famous in my book, at least for Doom and Doom Eternal. Mm. That's a good way to just kind of go too hard, do too much. It's like, oh wait, I I was only supposed to do twelve reps, not six hundred. <laughs> not to dox you andy but the id folks they're close to you right id's in georgia somewhere in the south right 
Are they? <laughs> I think they are. To me. I, I watched a documentary on them. So when you said okay. that, I was like, oh, I wonder if they're next door. They might be in Texas now that I think of it. No, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's the only, like, you know, right next door. Uh, I, <laughs> well, at first I thought is, Georgia. Right. If, if they are in Georgia, that's news to me. I only know of one for sure game company that's in Georgia, mm-hmm. and that's um, Tripwire Interactive. Texas. My second guess was correct. Oh, okay. Richardson, yeah. Texas. They're Texan. I guess that was the South. I was. Why, why, why do you Why do you think they're familiar with Hell and Earth, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> I like I, the folks over at it are, are super nice. At least the people I interact with. Because if I ever want to give Mecha Day a bump, I post something from Doom because the mecha- one of the mechanical designers always retweets the post, and it goes wild. So I could easily get like fifty or a hundred new followers just from uh, a Doom post. Hmm. Shoutouts to all the mechanical designers that put up with my shit online. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> all right. Now, for the record, we're covering Igloo Episode 1. I haven't even mentioned that yet on this record. But, Andy, I have another question for you that's not related to Igloo. I know you're a big Godzilla fan. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing Godzilla 2000 in theaters on Wednesday. We actually had to push the record up a bit so I could make it to this screening. What am I in for? Give me Also, give me, like, your some general like Godzilla hot takes. Oh, I've got some some pretty hot ones, some pretty spicy ones. Maybe not as spicy as my Gundam takes, the ones I keep to myself cuz I like having friends. <laughs> um uh, what are you in for with Godzilla 2000? Well, I've seen the movie twice. I saw it when it came out in the space year 2000. Saw it in the theaters with my family. And then I saw it again in 2015 when I was doing my own kind of entirety of Godzilla and also some choice other Toho movies marathon. And I don't remember anything about it. Okay. Um, the one thing I do remember about it is that, and I, I did research a little bit about it uh, when you brought it up to see if I can, you know, pull something out of the cobwebs up in my head about it. Uh, To me, it kind of feels like Toho scrambling to make another Godzilla movie after TriStar's Godzilla 98 came out. Mm -hmm. You know, and it it kind of feels like it. Because it's just like, what is this? This movie's kind of all over the place. Um, A creature that shows up in it is very obviously perhaps on purpose, reminiscent of Roland Emmerich's Aliens from Independence Day for just like a moment. And it comes out one year right after 98. And I know it's hard to make a movie in a year from scratch, but that's why the movie kind of feels rushed. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a fine movie, but again, it's just like I watched it, I've seen it twice, and I don't remember anything about it besides like the CG being kind of ugly. And the final battle being just not very great, but gotcha. it, I mean, it's a neat, it's a neat kind of not cornerstone, but it's a neat kind of blip on the Godzilla timeline. Yeah, it's and worth I'm forward, seeing. I'm looking forward. Number one, any Godzilla theatrical release um, around me, I will check out if I can because I've, I've been slowly sure. submerging myself in Godzilla. I have my like a real Godzilla noob. I have my Criterion 
box set of Showa films. I'm slowly, slowly working my way through. So I'm going to read them because the list is not very long. Of course, I've re- watched the first Godzilla a few times. Raids again. Watched King Kong versus Godzilla. Ghidorah. I also went back and watched Mothra and Rodan. Mm. And the next film on the list, which I haven't watched yet, is Invasion of Astro Monster. Okay. Well, you did ask me for some hot takes. Here's my yeah. first one. Invasion of the Astro Monster is a bad Godzilla movie. Is it well-liked in the fandom? Oh, it's commonly regarded as one of the top Godzilla movies. And I will agree to the point that visually speaking, it's astonishing. It has amazing set work, amazing miniatures. Um, uh, just the, uh, the special effects are great. All the monster stuff is really good for like the two and a half minutes of monster stuff there is. Um, I already said set design. But yeah, the whole visual language of the movie is terrific. It's just slow, inconsequential, and barely anything happens. And it's just an absolute unbearable slog to watch outside of it just being pretty. Mm. Like, I appreciate it. There are things about that movie that are great. It's just the experience of watching it isn't. (laughs) Gotcha. Do you have a what's your give me like a a Showa era Godzilla film that you're really warm on so I kind of judge your taste by comparison? Oh, I'll, I'll just give you my two favorites, first and second place: uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla and Terror okay. of Mechagodzilla. All right, the, I haven't seen them yet, but the artwork oh, they are, I have seen it looks dope. They are a hoot. Now you you guys have already of course watched through Big O and you've already watched through Giant Robo. I mean, so you kind of. I won't say you know what to expect, but there's a lot of that energy in at least the first one. The second one is a lot more dour. It's kind of a depressing movie, but it's also the one that Ishiro Honda, he didn't come back because he directed a lot of those movies, but he kind of, he bookended the original run of Godzilla by doing the first one and doing the first final one because there was like three other final last Godzilla movies after that. Um, But it has a, a similar energy to the original Godzilla 1954 and it's like this is different especially after movies like Godzilla vs. Gigan and uh, Godzilla vs. Megalon for it to come all the way back and just end on that really dour misanthropic note again hell yeah I mean I love uh, ending on a misanthropic note in my Mm -hmm. media don't we all (laughs) I think Fathom Events did Mechagodzilla sometime in the last year or two years before I was like all in on the Godzilla train. So I wish I could go back in time and check that in theaters. Oh, they did. Didn't they do Tokyo SOS this year? Or was that the like 93 Mechagodzilla they did this year? Oh, you might be right. I just remember the headline. There was definitely a Mechagodzilla they played this year. And I'm like, okay, it's not one from the 70s, so I don't care. So you're put you're planting your flag firmly in the show air when it comes to Godzilla films. Honestly, uh, yeah, because the the um the Heisei era has a lot of good hits. Honestly, there only there's only a few that just aren't that good. And the I don't have the list up in front of me, or else I could point them out um, explicitly. But I I like that the Heisei era just has like an ongoing arc. 
they kind of forget that Godzilla gets power-ups each movie, you know, and he's just like, oh, that's just whatever. We forgot that he has different colored, you know, nuclear breath now. Uh, But I like that it has that ongoing kind of narrative arc that connects all the movies together and the special effects and really the, like the, um, that's what I'm looking for. The tokusatsu elements of it are pretty nice. And the, the, the last movie of the Heisei era versus Destroyer, that's, that, that to me really does feel like the ultimate just thumbtack on the end of Godzilla. It's a perfect send-off, terrific movie, narratively complete, you know, just going all the way back to the original Godzilla and what Dr. Sarazawa was so frightened of. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. So even if, even if the Heisei era is just a build-up to versus Destroyer, the whole thing's worth it. But then Millennium Era, I'm just not thrilled with the majority of the Millennium Era. The special effects are kind of bad, and everything feels small. And Gone is that refreshing kind of camp and goofiness that the Showa has. That even if some of the Showa movies aren't great they're still a joy to watch simply because they are kind of rough around the edges and a little silly. And the millennium era just doesn't really have that. Fair, fair. I look now, forward you know, to, uh, oh, go on. No, I was going to say, you know, if anyone has shares differently, if they enjoy the Heisei most or millennium era most, that's great. More power to them. But I mean, my bias shows a little bit cause that's what I grew up on was all the Showa movies when they would air on the sci-fi channel. Because they they had dead air and they needed to fill it with something, they just decided to show every single Godzilla movie. But yeah, the the Showa era is just to me that's really what Godzilla's there for. I look forward to completing my run through the Showa era, probably sometime mid twenty twenty five at the rate I'm going. <laughs> Maybe by then, Criterion will have finally scooped up all the disparate rights for the Heisei era films and will have released a very aesthetically pleasing box set for them, though I doubt it. Mm. And maybe we'll get a uh, a Blu-ray of War of the Gargantuas or a Blu-ray of Rodan or um, uh, Frankenstein versus Baragon. I'd look forward to that. That would be nice. I mean, with Rodan, Criterion does have the rights. I guess they just don't see the money in them. Hmm. Oh, so actually, a- speaking of Rodan, is an interesting piece of trivia. That was Toho's first, it was either their first color movie ever, or it was at least their first color kaiju movie. It does scream like, hey, we have color now. It's 1955, <laughs> and it's, all, it's Technicolor, baby. I don't know the exact year Rodan came out in, but it's like a- I think it was 55 or 56. It was still in the 50s, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was a little lukewarm on Rodan, but Mothra fucking rules. I I have seen the original stand. Oh, yes. Yeah, the standalone Mothra is fun. I always remember the scene where Mothra cocoons on uh, was it the, the Jap- uh, Tokyo Tower. Yeah. I always remembered that as a kid, but never knew what movie it was from. Mm-hmm. And so in 2015, when I went back through all the Godzilla movies and I watched that one, I was like, oh, neat. Okay. That's where that one's from. Okay. Last Godzilla-related question. You're a big fan of the the de- Godzilla design from the 98 Matthew Broderick American film, right? What's the name Absolutely. of that design? That design rules. I know it has like a specific name in the fandom. 
I mean, it's it's Godzilla. There's not like a nickname for it, though. Okay, so there are two nicknames. Uh, I think when Toho bought the rights to that Godzilla, they renamed it just Zilla. Okay. Because when they there's there's a thread on Twitter somewhere, maybe um, was it Zionic Scanlations or something, someone of that caliber mm-hmm. did a whole thread about the rights with it, um, and talked about it. Uh, shout out to Zionic Scanlations for all their hard work. Um, and so when the, when Toho bought the rights to it, they changed it into a completely separate character. And so, like, on all the American toys and the American releases of that movie, it still comes with the, like, the stamp. You know, like, on all the, all the uh, Godzilla material has a stamp of all the kaiju that show up in that movie with their names and copyright. And so, in all American forms of media with that character on it, it's Godzilla. Mm-hmm. On all Japanese forms of media, including the 98 movie, that stamp is now Zilla. And so all forward-moving representations of that character is Zilla. Interesting. Yeah, I've the seen that name tossed ni- around. Yeah. Uh, it's, usually used, it's, uh, it's usually used just to differentiate. Uh, it's not really so much disparagingly. Uh, however, a lot of people also refer to that Godzilla as Gino, G-I-N-O, which stands for Godzilla in name only. Yeah. Right. And well, those could be a pe- New York reference. No, it could be, yeah. Uh, I challenge those people to say, like, okay, so it's Godzilla in name only, yet in Godzilla 2014, when people say, like, oh, why is Godzilla nature? Godzilla is supposed to be the bomb. Those people say, oh, Godzilla can be whatever it wants to be. I'm like, okay. If Godzilla can be whatever it wants to be, yet this one's Godzilla in name only, then there has to be defining elements that say what is and is not Godzilla. So, make it make sense. You can't say both. And then when you're having that conversation, you look around the room and realize you're with the worst people imaginable because you you've entered the the, the fan <laughs> the parts of the fandom that um, there's there's no light shining on it. It's like the Lion right. King quote. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's good to know. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to uh, asking you more Godzilla related questions um, as I watch more films. Okay, I can talk about Godzilla almost as much as I can talk about Big O. So. That oh, is a yeah. threat. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but Andy, you're not only into Showa era kaiju flicks. You're a big fan of what we're talking about today, which is MS Igloo. Um, so very curious. What is your history um, with this often forgotten Gundam OVA? So I was introduced, like most kids my age, I'm 32, um, to Gundam via Toonami. Unlike most kids my age, I was not allowed to watch it. And so it wasn't really until college when I got exposed to Gundam uh, proper. Fast forward, when I graduated college and I took a year off just to be a neat, and I loved it. I just uh, went on a Gundam watching spree. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other anime I watched too. I... Um, 
affectionately refer to the summer of 2014 as the summer of a thousand episodes of anime. Uh, and so I watched, I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to watch Gundam. So I watched the Gundam 0079 movie trilogy. I watched Zeta, GX, MS Igloo, 8th MS Team, 0080, um, I think the Evolve shorts. Oh, let's see. Turn A. And maybe a few others. Some shorter ones. I don't know if I watched any other full-length uh, series after that. But MS Igloo is one of those. I think I was just looking up Gundams. Uh, or rather, one of my friends told me about MS Igloo. It was like, yeah, there's, you know, they have this, this ship, and it's called... Oh, we'll get into that later. The ship, the name of the ship's cool, and they test out robots, and it's kind of just like behind-the-scenes war stuff. I'm like, okay, that seems kind of neat. And so then I watched it in 2014, and it just scratched every itch that I kind of figured I wanted uh, from Gundam, at least like a Gundam side story like that. And it was, it stayed with me ever since. I went and bought the high-grade Zuda. And built it that same year. A terrific kit. Um, I think that's all they ever. Oh, they made a Hildolfer from it, uh, but it's like that's actual like a actual level three grade paint, glue, and sticker kits. So I didn't touch that. Uh, but no, I I'm watched gonna ask it every guest if they have built a Zuda and if that Zuda is in the room with them as they are speaking to us. Because last guest, <laughs> Mark Simmons, was brandishing his Zuda in front of us. I, I know our third guest definitely has a Zuda lying around in his house. Our second guest, I'm not quite sure. Okay. That's the mark of quality. Um, when I, 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 so I just watched it in 2014 and haven't really forgotten about it since. I revisit it just in thought every now and then and just remember... That's good Gundam. Got the Italian hand. That's good Gundam. <laughs> I'm glad because we have three people uh, on our episode by episode coverage really enthusiastic about Igloo, which is not something you hear all the time. So I'm, I'm glad to uh, get a r- diverse range of voices into the mix. Um, mm-hmm. To it was really rec- exciting. Oh, go on. I say it was really exciting when uh, was it Nozomi released that Blu-ray? What three or four years ago now? That's not something I would have expected, but it was a thrill to see. Yeah, Nozomi, if you're listening, though, I'm looking right at the camera here. G-Savior. G-Savior. Blu-ray. G-Savior. Nozomi, I don't even know how how or if you exist in the same form you once did, but if you do, (laughs) G-Savior. G-Savior. Somebody needs to go on like on a rescue mission and just like parachute into Japan, find those prints. There's <laughs> got to be a master print somewhere in Japan. If not in Japan, then in some vault in Canada. Graham Campbell's house, maybe. <laughs> Can't believe I remembered his name. I remember the weirdest stuff from the history episodes. Like Graham Campbell, <laughs> for example. I know he's in his late 60s. Uh, directed a few episodes of Degrassi, the ones with Kevin Smith. <laughs> And Jason Muse. These are the stuff that stays with you. All right, my friends. Let's get into the proverbial Jotunheim and vanish into Loom as I try to transition effectively there. You are you are you my my friends? Are you ready? Please, we're ready. In the void of space, the Jotunheim, a Xeon support ship docks with a Papua-class vessel 
to initiate an exchange of materiel. Several technicians guide the parts of a space laser across a dotted line directional path. Nearby, a single musai is positioned as defense. Real quick, Papua, I never get tired of saying it or listening to it. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It just rolls off the tongue in my mind. <laughs> I just really appreciated that. Of course, it reminds me of, I mean, do Papua's show up much outside of, because uh, when I think of Papua, I think of the episode of First Gundam where you run into the uh, the old guy in the Zaku 1, you know, that, that <laughs> fights. Uh, he's like, I'm, I'm, I still know how to fight and he <laughs> just charges and gets, you know, blown up by the Gundam. Um <laughs> I, I was trying to think if, if the Papuas are, are sh- I'm, I'm sure somewhere in the vast expanse of media, you know, they're probably a common unit in Garen's Greed or something. I don't know. But um, but I was wondering if there's any like other signature moments for the Papua. I can't say that I know of any. However, that scene with the, uh, uh, the Zaku-1 pilot, that was terrific in the origin. Like he gets, he gets several pages of just being like, you know, I don't care if it's mobile suits or people in real life, real fighting's grappling, son. And he just charges and grapples and Greco-Roman wrestles the Gundam. It's like this is it, this this is right. <laughs> yeah, step step aside, Kukuru's down. This is real real mobile <laughs> sumo arts. I'm glad you brought up Origin, Andy, because I didn't revisit my manga volumes, but I did revisit parts of the OVA just to refresh myself um, with how that adaptation um, depicted Loom, as Mm. we'll talk about later. Right. After that quick opening, cut to Sora no Tamoto, which roughly translates to The Origin of Space-Time, Igloo's theme song, written and performed by Taja, <clears throat> great podcasting here of him which accompanies the opening montage I didn't specify this in our history episode I don't think but Taja isn't a person it's the name of a J-pop duo kind of like 2Mix for example to bring it back to Gundam Wing Yuji Kano composes the music while Naho Tanaka writes lyrics and sings the songs do you two gentlemen have any thoughts on the theme song? I really like it, but I don't know if I can crystallize that in a very cogent and clear sentence. It just It's a very heartfelt, good piece of music, I think. Yeah, it feels like an extremely mid-2000s piece of J-pop, which I don't mean as, as a criticism. Uh, you know, I think it's like if you pull one of these up, this is what you get. I think the thing that, that strikes me more than anything else about this song is sort of the... Um, how much it changes in in terms of intensity between the uh, the verses and the chorus. Like the chorus really picks things up, and like a, I mean, we're used to a verse kind of lead building up or leading into a chorus, but I almost feel like it just kind of you know right first to fourth gear, like nothing in between, um, which just kind of always t- takes me off guard uh, when I, when I listen to it. But I think it's otherwise it's fine. I mean, really, if I if I had a complaint about this uh, this op sequence. Uh, I'm not a fan of the flames. I do not like the flames. <laughs> so what you're telling me is you don't like Terminator. That's what you're telling me. Maybe. It's been a long time. <laughs> you know, it has been a long time. PMC, have you ever streamed a Terminator game? There are many. Uh, No, I don't think I've streamed a Terminator game. There's a few that are kind of relevant, like a few like six-gen ones that tie into some of those movies. Some of them are, mm-hmm. are, are well-regarded as games. Um. 
But no, no, I, don't, I have not actually... T- There's actually a few early Bethesda games. Bethesda FPSs, a few of them are Terminator games. So like early 90s, like around the time of Doom, um, which are kind of interesting as well. Bethesda famously located not in Georgia. Right. Well, yeah, is, <laughs> we, we know where they're from. We know that one. I'm trying to redeem myself here, folks. No, I think that OP is honestly absolutely killer. Uh, I, I really quite enjoyed it because I, I only listened to it twice. You know, I should remember more about it than I do. But yeah, it does start out kind of slow, but it is. I don't know. It's just it's it's um, poignant's not the right word, but it's pointed. You know, it's just it's I don't know. It's got good energy to it. I also am hesitant to able be able to put together a cogent sentence to describe it. That's why I just wrote absolutely killer in my notes. Uh, when I, I wrote my notes, a, I was like, all right, I can't, I'm having trouble crystallizing this into thought. I'm just going to throw it to my two co-hosts here. Thoughts right, on the I'm an engineer. Song? I'm not, a, I'm not a composer. Um, I did point out though, is like, what even is that typeface that they use for MS Igloo? Well, that, that is some w- wild stuff. One of the questions that we had during the history episode, which I'm going to, I'm going to repeat, not necessarily because I'm trying to put you on the spot, Andy, because I'm hoping anyone listening to this might have an answer, which is, um, you know, in the like very formal typeface logo that appears in the OP, it capitalizes the M in MS and the L in Igloo. And we want to know if there's a reason. I have no idea. I had to look up what they meant by MS Igloo, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, that was new. That was news to to us as well. I, I uh, Mark Simmons explained it. Which, if you haven't listened to that episode, Igloo is apparently a another term for arsenal. Hmm. I got to try to use Igloo as a noun, lowercase noun, once in my summaries, if, if I can, if I could shoehorn it in there somehow. <laughs> Oh, before we go any further, because uh, this happens right before the theme song where everyone's kind of floating through space, I want everyone to mark this on their uh, watches, you know, stop your stopwatch, because I'm going to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, <laughs> got my bingo card. Mark that All right, off. Yeah, mark it off. We got there. Um, the opening when everyone's just kind of floating through space and the Jotunheim is, you know, it's got its markers out and it's kind of corralling its cargo. I got really big motion picture vibes from that. Especially just the guy floating through space kind of on or near that scaffolding. I'm like, okay, they're probably not going for that at all, but my mind's going for it. (laughs) Yeah, that, that, potential reference would have been sealed if it continued for another eight minutes and the music just swelled to a crescendo as it was happening. Right. right. And I'm saying that as a fan of the motion picture. Mm-hmm. I got to check out the director's cut. I've only seen the, the thre- theatrical release. Oh, I kind of have mixed feelings about the director's cut. Um, Some of the upgrades, it was kind of like the, the special editions of Star Wars, right? Mm-hmm where some of the things they change are honestly better. It's few and far in between for some of them, but they are honestly better. Some of them are honestly not for the best. And some of the things that the director's cut changes makes it not my favorite version of the film. It's a good version of the film, especially when you get to see like 
a full 3D render of V'ger. Like, that's great. And um, I guess if, you know, some they, they add, like, the nacelles uh, in the rear of the Enterprise when they're in the ready room. Like, that's cool. Nice little continuity fixes. But, like, the, the BGM and the background special effects they add really, really take me out of it because they just sound cheap. And you know, they, they kind of ruin the documentary feel of the film that I've come to really, really thoroughly enjoy about it. Honestly, my favorite version of the film is the special longer version. I, I honestly think that probably is the best version of the film. Is that available officially in a high def format? Or it has is. it been stitched together by fans? Oh, really? Uh, nice. So it, it was released in the 80s. And I'll make this quick because we're talking about MS Igloo, not the motion picture, though I can talk about both. Uh, it came out in the 80s on home video on VHS and Laserdisc, and it was a it was the TV version of the film that had extra scenes added back into it to f- have enough content to fill the three-hour block it had on TV. Mm, interesting. And that was released on home video only those two times, and um, fans have reconstructed. In fact, there's a uh, HD reconstruction out there right now, which is quite, quite good. But on the home video release that was released, I want to say this year, the Complete Adventure Director's Cut, the uh, Paramount has officially reconstructed and re-released the special longer version in 4K, and on, but only in that specific release. Okay. But it's, it's, it's everything good about the Director's Cut, without anything that could or could not be good about the director's cut in it. It's the maximum amount of movie. That's a compelling sales pitch. Mm. Something about the vibes of the motion picture, I feel like when I'm watching it, it's summertime in the 70s, and I was born in 1988, mind you. And like mm. I, it, it has like good, you're in a bar with your dad, and there's a TV, and the motion picture comes on. And that's not a knock mm. against it. It's just, I don't know. There's something like wood grain to it. Yeah, I I feel you. Yeah. All right, I don't know how to transition back to Igloo after that. (laughs) It's my fault. Poetic tangent. No, don't worry. It was was a good tangent to go on. Before we leave the topic of the theme, so I will say I do like the origin of space-time a little more than, and this is a deep cut, but not too deep for Giant Robot FM listeners, the... The single from the G Savior PS2 video game. Um, Wrong. I have it up. Wrong. No, I'd like it better. Wrong. Sorry, PMC. Wrong. You're biased. You're biased. You, you cannot play. tell me that this is better than Dear Mother. I get, like it a little more than Dear Mother. out of here. Yeah. That song is for you, the mothers, okay? Please. <laughs> for the five of you who, have li- who can, like, by memory alone conjure up the the audio of both theme songs and do a comparison please let us know okay my one sales pitch for dear mother because you're making me do this now in the middle of an MSA I like dear mother. <laughs> when i was listening to it though, i was like i like this a little more than dear mother that's the first thing i thought all right folks if you have not gotten to the end of gc ps2 maybe you have played castlevania symphony of the night and which if you played the playstation one version has an inexplicable english number at the end called i am the wind that is just like from a different plane of existence and that is what getting hit with dear mother feels like at the end of g savior and i think that is outstanding 
And this is, you know, it's maybe it's an apples to oranges comparison. I feel like it's hard to make, you know? Sorry, I'm listening to your mother now. <laughs> yeah. And I'm right. It's I'm good. right. It's good. It's an opinion. I'll say that. Okay. I I look forward to our, our listeners hopefully tell, uh, breaking one way or the other on this. <laughs> That's a big ass, though. I guess if they could go on YouTube and do the research themselves. I mean, did you see your look? If you search "G Series" soundtrack, you get the PS2 game soundtrack before you get the movie soundtrack. So <laughs> I just, well, there's the a reason for that. There's yeah, there's a reason for that. Exactly, there is a reason for that. Sans dear mother, even though I like mm. dear mother a lot. All right, so afterwards, we're treated to another montage, this one recapping the UC timeline. PMC, I'm going to throw you the proverbial mic here. Care to do the honors to walk us through the timeline, the early UC timeline as presented by MS Igloo? Sure. It's funny about this. This is not even the first time that I've walked through an early UC timeline on microphone. I previously did something like this when I was playing a Gundam 9, The War for Earth, which also includes a somewhat similar um, like just montage of things like this. Uh, for my, for my my co over my my uh, co-hosts and, and guests here, let me just bring. I so I, this is I this is from a video where I'm not reading, um, but I, I time stamped it to about the area where I'm like on on the, just flipping through the slides. When I streamed the game, I, I read all of these out loud. So mm. according to Emma Glue, the uh, you know the the UC calendar UC year one. Obviously, this is well before unicorn is a thing. So don't talk to me about unicorn. <laughs> humans begin humans began colonizing space. The calendar was changed to the universal century. 0058 side 3 declared its independence and the Republic of Xeon was established. And I should mention this also appears I think this is like a pretty well established date. It also appears in the War for Earth as being the date of Xeon's uh as, you know independence and also specifically it is the Republic at that point. Uh, 0059, the Earth Federation government invoked economic sanctions against Side 3. 0069, nice, the existence of Manofsky particles were confirmed. Xeon declared itself a principality. Uh, again, that one's also lines up too with the War for Earth. Uh, although, of course, in the War for Earth localization, that's very early English localization. So they are still calling it Duchy uh, instead of principality in that one. And then 0078. Principality of Xeon announced a state of national mobilization. I think these dates line up with uh, the origin as well. The only reason why I'm stressing the origin so much is so much, so many members of this creative team would go on to adapt Yaz's manga a little less than 10 years later. But I don't have a photographic memory, but. The OVA is, and so is the manga, very careful about dates. I mean, Yaz is such a historian with the way he writes that these mm. dates are thoughtful. But yeah, no, no major, major retcons here. This is a pretty straightforward run of the early UC timeline. No wild cards, for better or for worse. And generally speaking, at least this first episode is, I think kind of i'm gonna i'm gonna use the word impersonal which kind of has a negative connotation but i don't really mean it that way i just mean that it is sort of less concerned with uh historical figures you know we at most mm -hmm. i think we kind of allude to Giran maybe or or to dozel really i think it's probably dozel who would be on the capital ship and then uh and then we get you know we shard drops by but like you know there's no mention of of, of daikun or uh you know or degwin or anybody 
And honestly, uh, I'll probably come back to this in a little bit, but that's one of the things I really enjoy about MS Igloo is that it is so detached. You know, it of course, it takes place in the universe, but the th- main story beats of 0079 just seem to happen around them. And it's like, okay, th- I feel like this is kind of what a side story should be. It happens in space, but it doesn't change anything that's already been established. You know, it's not like, oh, there was another Gundam this whole time. And there was another Char. You know, I, I, <laughs> any, any, anybody's thoughts about Johnny Ridden I was going to say Johnny Ridden fans <laughs> suffering <laughs> right now. Like Johnny Ridden just, oh, he was at the Battle of Loom too. And he killed more capital ships than Char. It's like, why would you do this? This is not, this is simply not good storytelling. Andy, do you, have any, do you have any familiarity with the Zionic Front? Just curious, the PS2 game. No. Okay. That that is also I, I so our, our our third guest is a huge fan of that and uh I think for kind of almost similar reasons to what you just talked about here, which is that it is sort of a successful Xeon perspective side story in that it does not mm-hmm. um I mean there is like I think there's like a Gundam three or Gundam four, the Mudrock Gundam that shows up in that, but it's you know, again, it's kind of a, a later in the one year war, it's not as effective, it's almost more like an Alex, you know, than it is anything else. Um okay. so but again, and a recommendation to anyone out there who's interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, I completely agree with both my co-hosts here. I have more notes about this later, but compared to how Matt incredible like multimedia franchises are handled today, Igloo is refreshingly restrained when it comes to depicting its own small little segment of the universe and it's very restrained with how it deploys cameos or chooses not to make allusions to other Mm -hmm. shows within the same universe you know ms igloo is it's filling in the gaps you know we're we're world building without retroactively harming the main finished story and i i applaud any side story that is that restrained that is that i think a better word is just that considerate right <laughs> or you can like I, with uh thunderbolt it's like ah it's just it's just it's not canon just have fun i'm like okay that's good too yeah that's fun too <laughs> i do wonder if igloo were made in the year 2023 how it would be handled or because, of course, we have six more episodes post this original batch. I do wonder if the episodes, if the storytelling in Igloo 2 is any different compared to these first three episodes. It's been a decade since I've seen it last, so I cannot comment. Let's, let's introduce some of our major characters here. As he's overseeing the supply transfer, Lieutenant Oliver May, a member of the 603rd Technical Evaluation Unit, protected from the deadly cold of space by his Xeon emblazoned spacesuit, wonders if the Earth is a small place. It doesn't seem that way from here. Space is supposed to be infinitely vast. Then why do we, space noids, feel as if we were being suffocated? My commentary, even though this episode has already run a little long, my commentary during our Igloo coverage may be on the lighter side because whenever we get introduced to a new piece of Xeon tech or a new character, I do want to read 
its profile from the booklet that came with the Bondi visual release, just because I feel like this information isn't widely available online. And I hope mm-hmm. to scan this booklet eventually once I get access to a scanner um, that actually works. So we'll see how that goes. Um, Oliver May's profile is pretty short. An engineering officer assigned to the 603 Technical Evaluation Unit under the order from Engineering Rear Admiral, Admiral Alberto Schatz. Although still a rookie fresh out of university, he has a great sensitivity towards machines and the thought and feeling put into them by the creators. He is 23 years old. You could, tell, you could also tell this is a little detached from other Gundam shows based on the ages too, because the ages all seem very reasonable. <laughs> and he the kind of people. looks his age too. True. Is he, yeah, he's only a year younger than than Trey's Kushinata, right? He lo- he looks weathered compared to Trey's <laughs> baby face Trey's, <laughs> which makes sense though. I mean, Trey's wasn't an engineering major, all right. So, right. He was too busy attending the opera or taking bubble baths. <laughs> taking in the, bubble baths, yeah. <laughs> in the innards of a <laughs> formerly great. Greek temple. Thinking about how important war is and then you fight it yourself while my bubble bath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the um the designation of six oh three got me, of course, thinking about Star Wars. And well, I do hey, wonder cross off another bingo square. I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm gonna bring up stars quite a few times today. It's a shocker. Um I know that Gundam military otaku, uh, Mark Simmons alluded to this in our history episode, um, are fond, either fond of Igloo or there's the perception that Igloo was made for them. Um, I'm not like a big scholar on the 501st. I'm talking about these this, the fictional Stormtrooper squad, Vader's personal squad of Stormtroopers. Um, but I couldn't help but think about the, the numerical designation of 501st and the numerical designation of 603. I know there are differences. This was created by the company. The 501st was created by fans and it was co-opted later on. Obviously, the 603 isn't a traditional military unit. The 501st is, but I still, I couldn't help but draw the comparison. I do wonder if, because of course, there are pretty hardcore Star Wars fans really into the military tech of the Star Wars universe that really glom on to the 501st and maybe cosplay as them. I do wonder if in Japan... Um, equally enthusiastic about military tech do those fans glom onto the 603 is anyone cosplaying as oliver may i doubt it but i i am curious yeah I, I would honestly equally doubt with anyone i mean i say that and i've seen some really deep cut cosplays before but and actually uh, so yeah no one's probably cosplaying oliver may but i have seen someone cosplay as zuda before and so there, there is representation where it matters. I'm super excited to get to episode three and talk about the Zuda. Fun oh. fact, Andy, our guest originally, I can't remember who I contacted first, but someone said, yes, both of you said the Zuda episode. And I think you were like, no, I want to do episode one. I was like, perfect. Everyone gets what they want. <laughs> Anyone have any like, critical thoughts? A lot of these characters just, I mean, we have to get to the action so much in this first episode. And also, you have to consider how Igloo was made. It was made as a theater screening. So there's a priority placed on these big CGI set pieces. So I feel like we don't get a lot of time with these characters and a lot of character moments. So that's why I feel like my analysis is a little on the slimmer side. I don't really have too much to say. He's, you know, a little wet behind the ears, fresh out of college. 
Um, he has some moral compass, and we'll talk about that. He has mm-hmm. a degree of ideology. I would like to see that teased out more. Um, so there is like something to Oliver. I just don't know if I have a lot to say about him. I think he's very much meant to be the perspective character. Um, you know, you've already alluded to the bit of morality that we'll discuss. And I, I think that also the other part of it is that he deeply be- he deeply believes that what happens in this episode matters. Um, when, of course, you know, the joke is on him that in, in the scale of history that, you know, that the, the Jormungand is was was sort of a distraction or a throwaway compared to the real deal which were you know the rise of mobile suits that's what the battle of loom is all about and so you know i i think he he is definitely played up for for his innocence and naivete that he is so you know sincere about this weapon mattering and that you know i think that blinds him to multiple things as you know as we discover yeah honestly same i think Anything I have to say about Oliver comes later in the episode. I do agree that he is the perspective character because at the end of the episode, we see that he kind of does the uh, Dear Princess Celestia letter at the end. Um, but also, also being an engineer, you know, I kind of get it. I kind of get some of Oliver's stuff, if not also just his affinity towards machines. Yeah, I was going to ask, Andy, do you feel that you are warmer on Igloo because of that shared background? Because you're an engineer? I do bring that up later. Uh, there's, a, there's a part where they do just have, like, engineering exposition. And, in, you know, I, I, may have, I may have noticed that and enjoyed that a decade ago, but my rewatch now is like, oh, yeah. Yes, please, please tell me more about it, how it's... Um, its power output is 150,000 kilowatts. This, this is things, these things I understand. This is good. Uh, those blueprints and the 3D isometric uh, views of the of the cannon, and that definitely helps because that is something I really appreciate about Igloo is that it is just some engineers field testing new tech, and it's like this is this is great. This is definitely an a, the less romanticized but still real aspects of war that you know you don't you don't get movies made about this kind of stuff you know because it's not you know this glorious rush to s- this hill or whatever it's not it's not sergeant york right and it's not saving private ryan it's i don't know beneath hill 60 and I'll nod in my head knowingly, even though that last reference went right over my head. All right, beneath Hill sixty, in short, it's a um, it's a World War One movie, which is already kind of rare. Uh, there's a German encampment on top of a hill, and uh, Australian and British miners mine underneath it, plant like hundreds of megatons of explosives, and just detonate the entire hill. And at that point in time. It was the largest man-made explosion ever. And I think it was the largest man-made explosion until the A-bomb. Okay. But the movie's kind of boring, but it is just like, we're some engineers, and this is a problem. We need to fix it. And that's what kind of, MS is not boring, but it's kind of more along that vibe where it's just mm-hmm. like, we have a problem, and we need to figure out what the solution is. And in the case of it, Miss Igloo, it's like Engineer from Team Fortress 2, where the answer is more gun. (laughs) (laughs) 
before the transfer can be completed, two Salamis-class Federation warships locate their position and open fire. The Papua is abandoning its cargo and retreating. The pilot of the Jotunheim announces, After we recover the work unit, we should retreat. Ehrlich Kruger, the executive officer, exclaims. So here we have our number two. His little profile, his short profile, in the Bondi visual release booklet states, quote, a commensurate lieutenant commander. He has known Captain Prokno since the Jotunheim was a passenger transport ship. He is 40 years old. End quote. That's what I'm talking about these ages. I'm like, well, we have a 40-year-old I know. Here. Oldest, <laughs> oldest Gundam character ever to exist. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I'm like, yes, I am younger than this person. This came up in our Gunbuster coverage, um, but I bumped on it then, and I'm bumping on it a bit now. Executive officer, or XO, is just the second in command. It's more of a naval term, I think, based on some cursory Google searching. Uh, to put this in Star Trek terms, Andy, you'll appreciate this. A Kruger is basically the Riker to Prochno's Picard. And by the way, Andy, you're rocking a very nice Jonathan Frakes beard. Yes, I'm. I used to be a little upset when I was younger. It's like, why doesn't my beard grow in like higher up on my face? But then after I watched TNG for the first time, it's like, oh, how lucky! My beard just automatically grows like Jonathan Frakes's does. <laughs> hey, beautiful man. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we no. have. Oh, go on. Well, I was saying we have brought up the Jotunheim a, a couple of times already, as I think we have. Do we need to discuss what Jotunheim means, or has that been covered already? Go for it. Okay, so, uh, and I thought this was really great. This is another one of those little touches that I really like about MS Igloo that you don't really get to see too much in episode one, but by the time you get to episode three, for sure, and and also in the sequel series. Um, I did a cursory a little bit of research on this. Jotunheim in uh, Norse mythology, I believe, is the land of the giants. In fact, there's still the Jotunheim National Park uh, today. But I just I thought that was really neat that you have this ship that is a test bed for giants, mobile suits, and they're launching off of it. And that's where they're being you know tested and engineered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm like, that's that's neat. It's a little on the nose, and maybe it's a little silly that they would have ships named after Norse, you know, terminology. Same thing for the canon, the Jor Jormungand. Jormungand. Uh but it's like I don't know. That's just that's just an extra nice little touch that I appreciate in um in MS Igloo. They're literally working with giants. I want to see more of this ship. Again, I hate to beat the low-hanging fruit that is Star Wars references, but based on how it's described in the booklet, like a motley crew on board this ship, I get you know I get Millennium Falcon vibes. This cozy environment, very lived in. A lot of weirdos on this ship. I want to see more of it. Um, Imanishi in the some of the production material I read was like, yeah, we wanted to show more of it, but resources uh, were limited so we constantly had to reuse the bridge as an environment for these characters to interact in I, w- I want to see like um, it kind of does the, the lived inness reminds me of PMC help me out here the ship from Rebels oh shit dog I, I'm sorry <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I should know this. I meant to look it up before the record, but I had a feeling I'd be bringing it up. This well, is what happens when you, AMC goes me, on like, hiatus for a while. If you the KOTOR ship, I'd be like, yeah, Eben Hawk Dog. I know that one. Yeah, Eben Hawk. The, yeah, Eben Hawk. Such uh, a good name. The Ghost? Not a good name, but a good ship design. Now, if, if I recall correctly, uh, Shinji Adamaki did some mechanical designs for Igloo. Is that correct? Yes, I believe this is did, one of them. Did he do the Jotunheim? Was that his was that his baby? I think so. We okay. went over this with Mark. It's in the booklet. Okay. I'm I'm going to I'm going to plant my flag and say yes. I can't really tell based on stylistic sensibilities like I can't pull, point to an Armaki design and go, "Yes, that's his," because I haven't seen enough of his stuff, but Mhm. Well, it, it, you're kind of in a hard spot because it's not a motorcycle that turns into a like a, a walking bipedal robot. I know. There you go. That's, that's his major calling cards. So it's like, well, dang, it's not that, and it's not Perceptor and Soundwave from Transformer. So yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I <laughs> I can't help you. And he's just jumping from like Western production company to Western production company nowadays. And no slight against him. I want to see that Alien versus Predator show that is done. It's out there. It's in a vault somewhere. He finished 10 episodes of it. Fox, oh. Disney, release it. All right, I don't have any, any hard-hitting thoughts about Kruger, though. Maybe we'll get a Kruger-centric episode in the next 50 minutes of Igloo we have to watch. I doubt it. I doubt it. We're, we're not going to get any. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, this guy, to me, feels like he's right there with, um, with the Goggles Man, who I don't think we have a name for at this time. Like, they're, no, they're going to live on the bridge. Mm. It's just as, like, as fixtures. I'm shocked we didn't get an. I like I was frantically going through the booklet. Like mm. this guy has such a distinct design. Does he have a name in the booklet? No, because I would have posted Ooh. it. I would have changed my notes accordingly. Yeah, <laughs> the goggles—they do nothing. Yeah, does not understand the concept of love. But we, our next person we are going to introduce does have a name. Suddenly, the deep voice of Alexandro Heme. Chief Gunnery Officer breaks over the comms. Let us fire our guns, he demands. We are about to retreat, the captain tells him. Heme pushes back against Prokno, arguing that they should provide the lone Musai with covering fire. Cut to the battle, where a laser blast rips through the Papua. The Musai returns fire. Meanwhile, Oliver arrives on the bridge of the Jotunheim, where he urges the captain to prioritize the cargo. Shut up, you engineering nerd. Heme screams. <laughs> All right, so we got Alexandro Heme. Uh, we don't have an age. Oh, we do have an age on him. He is 38 years old, again, older than me, so older than all of us. So uh, take take heart, my co-host. We are still, we're still youngsters podcasting about Gundam here. <laughs> His profile reads, the chief gunnery officer on the Jotunheim and later on assigned to operate the Jormungand. He is a rather antiquated person who takes pride in being a gunner. He is 38 years old. I suspect Heme, as well as Washia, were conceived originally as like quasi-comedic reliefs. There's not too much comedy in the first episode of Igloo. But he's a very archetypal character. 
like, you know, the rough around the edges crew member who works below decks. In Star Trek terms, even though there are differences between these two characters and Heme, I think, think of like a Scotty or a Balana. They're super passionate about what they do. They aren't afraid to speak their mind, even if it means butting heads with the captain. And, and I came up with a comedic relief observation when he gave his line, when he calls Oliver a nerd, I was like, yes, this is a laugh line, cue audience reaction. Honestly, my reaction to that one is that one kind of hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm supposed to laugh at that? No. <laughs> I'm in Oliver's position. You have to endear, based on what happens later in the episode, you have to like try to endear the audience to Heme if his enthusiasm for, for guns doesn't do it. Right. And I was going to say that he, we'll get to it later, but he's being set up right now rather well for his climax that he's, I, they don't go to it necessarily quite so explicitly, and they do later, but it's still implicit that he is very passionate about war, and he's at least lived it, whether he's been bred for it or not, and that it's something that he definitely exists to do, to be, and that will be touched on very heavily later on. All right, so I have to, I have to speak a thought out loud that's in my brain about this man, and uh, I feel like I might have said something similar in our coverage of the origin, which is, isn't this the first big battle in space? How is this guy a grizzled gunner veteran? That doesn't make sense. And maybe there are other conflicts, right? Maybe there's some other capacity in which he could have developed that, you know, that sort of veteran nature with, he, with which he carries himself. <laughs> but it definitely feels like a sort of interesting thing that it's like... Um, like a, like a tradition that never really had its moment. Like, is is this the high watermark of you know of, of space fleet battles before you know they're immediately eclipsed by mobile suits? That's a good point. And I I guess you you can you can be trained and 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 run and know how to do something even if you've never done it before and still find fantastic pride in it. And I imagine there still could have been skirmishes mm-hmm. between. Uh, uh, salamis and and um, what is it and papayas, you know beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I to be clear, also like you know, there are plenty of f- famous examples in war of things that were set up, had a lot of time, money, effort put into, and immediately failed straight flat on their face. I mean, the one that I always <laughs> go to in my brain is the Maginot Line, of course, the France's defense in World War Two. Didn't do so hot, um, you know. So like, I could see how someone was really like, "Oh yeah, this will never fail." You know, narrator, it failed. Um, so like, you know, <laughs> I, I I think there's a reading here that makes sense, but it definitely comes at the expense of of Heme's dignity. <laughs> Just by being a gunnery officer, though, he has death flags all over him because in military literature especially literature that adheres to a more naval tradition the gunnery officers are so expendable like as an archetype of course i'm going to bring up master and commander now but even in the film um the dude in charge of firing the guns kicks it you can't kill the captain you're not going to kill the doctor but the gunnery officer he's expendable there's nothing though like in when i'm watching a like a naval movie or even like a Star Wars, for example, or a Star Trek, whenever two ships are side by side and just let loose an onslaught of cannon fire, that's like chef's kiss, perfect for me, visually, in a military format. 
It's the good stuff. You know what's not the good stuff, though? We get a lot of close-ups of faces in Igloo. Heme especially. The uncanny valiness is off the fucking charts. Uh, Real Polar Express vibes, which, as it would happen, came out the same year as Igloo, 2004. So I guess weirdly animated homunculi human faces were a hallmark of early CG tech, which makes sense. I mean, just take a look at the trajectory of Pixar as a creative studio. Um, They really didn't nail faces until Incredibles, and there are still some wonky faces in Incredibles. The motion capture in this and the faces really reminded me of a lot of how I feel the faces look in uh, in the Yakuza series. Um, just yes. in terms of like the drama and the way they really lean into things. You know, I mean, you, you could definitely see Hame being just like a, like a, a Kuze-type character, you know, to reference the, the one lieutenant from uh, Yakuza 0. Uh, there's de- I definitely had a lot of that energy into it. And, um, and I feel like, Steven, I might be stealing your comment here, but like I, I think I'm, I'm kind of glad they focus on the faces because I feel like the faces are the most impressive thing that they have going here. Um, anytime I see a hand, like I want to yank on it, like it's a, like it's an arm on a mannequin that I can just pull off. <laughs> Everything's moving around. I feel like Jerry Seinfeld. I'm talking. Everything's moving around. <laughs> I find it very endearing because I am 35 years old and grew up on PS2 games. So the right. I've, I've, as a pejorative, I've heard people say, yeah, it looks like a PS2 game. And I'm like, that's a positive. Yeah. This looks like a PS2 game. Exactly. Yeah, I actually have that in my notes, whereas I hear that all the time. It's like, do you, are you even listening to yourself? Yeah, it looks like a PS2 game. This is what I'm here for. Hell yeah. We just <laughs> like, need yes, to add I a want, yes, I want to see everything look like a Soul Calibur 2 pre-rendered cutscene. It's the high watermark of human existence, creative expression. Where's my piss filter for Igloo to keep things topical? I imagine Kojimo definitely like Igloo. This is right up his alley. He likes Gundam, but all the military tech name dropping, right up his alley. I think that's right. By the way, my hot take for this episode, Polar Express actually rules. I understand the memes, but as a Christmas movie, it Hmm. is fantastic. Real quick, most Christmas films miss the mark when it comes to depicting Christmas. You want to depict Christmas right. There's a loneliness, like an existential loneliness to Christmas, especially when you're talking about the snow and getting lost in the vastness of it all. This movie nails. That really speaks to me. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. I, I, I usually just I'm in the uh, Rankin and Bass Santa Claus is coming to town camp myself. That has some faces too. Mm. I mean, my favorite Christmas movie is obviously Cuckoo's Don't Island. I knew you were no, going to say that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's funny at this point. I don't like at this point my my answers for like Christmas media are are like unintentionally obnoxious because. One of them, okay, so just like we're talking about Christmas movies, uh, there are even fewer Christmas video games. And so when uh, the, the GDQ showrunners are like, oh my God, how do we put together a Christmas speedrun special? What ends up happening is that they ask me to speedrun Die Hard on Christmas, which I do. You know, I do do that. I, I have that in my back pocket. Um, I have a back, you know, pocket Die Hard. 
Um, so I do that for them, you know, and so I, I did that twice. I did that for two Christmas specials last year, and I bet you it's going to happen again this year. Um, and then the other thing is that I always play Paris at Eve for Christmas every year. But It only takes so long to play through Christmas Nights into Dreams. You need other games on top of that. There's, you know, Christmas shows up in some other mecha media. I think there is Christmas in a part of Metal Wolf Chaos, so. Oh. You know, we got, we might, and that might be the one to revisit. That's a, that's a real niche, though. Christmas in mecha video games. It's already pretty niche in mecha shows. We, of course, we talked about the same five things. Yes. The Big O, Endless yeah. Waltz, War in the Pocket, that episode of, from the Pat Labor TV show, and there's probably a fifth one. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a fifth one. Uh, Giant Robo. I mean, they... I mean... Um, what's her nuts dresses like Santa? Yes, that's true. That's true. about as far as it goes. But there you go. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, Albert. Well, that's a spoiler for all of our fans who have unfortunately not seen the greatest anime ever made. Yeah, Giant that's Robo another topic entirely. It is. <laughs> the cargo could decide the outcome of this war. Oliver counters. The captain attempts to mediate, but is interrupted by the deafening noises of the exploding Papua. Out in space, the cylindrical laser parts are thrown off course by the blast. As the Jotunheim deals with the aftershocks of the explosion, the Musai keeps up a relentless barrage of beam fire, destroying one Salamis cruiser and forcing the other to retreat. Hurry up and retrieve the so-called invaluable cargo Prokno curtly orders, we will search for the destroyed Papua's crew as well. After the cargo has been secured and the proverbial dust has settled, Oliver reports for duty on the bridge. I have returned with the evaluation orders from Zeon. With the fatalism typical of a ship's captain, Prokno's thoughts are on the Papua and its fallen crew. The reason why the Jotunheim wasn't targeted first was solely because this is a slow ship that was merely drafted into service. The last thing I want to do is to expose this ship to danger for some unknown cargo. All right, give it up for my boy, Martin Prokno, captain of the Jotunheim. His profile reads, quote, in command of the Jotunheim since its time as a passenger transport. He is currently a commensurate captain in the Principality Forces, which means he is technically not military personnel. Among the various people in the 603 Technical Evaluation Unit, he is one of the few people who can make rational decisions. He is, drumroll please, 53 years old. Shoutouts to my boy Prokno and making it past 40 in a Gundam show. <laughs> Unprecedented. Looks the same exact age as Ramba Rao. <laughs> Tw- 20 years, roughly 20 years his junior. Oh, yeah, their, Ramba- their, uh, their ages are inverted. Procknell's 53 and Ramba Rao's uh, 35, right? That is that is true. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know what the difference between them is? Here we go. Martin lived until he was 53. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think Prochno's the most interesting member of the 603, uh, 23 minutes, 25 minutes into this OVA. Um, like, not because of his personality or anything, not to slight Prochno, like, but what he represents, like, conceptually. Prochno, as the summary indicates, as his bio indicates, he didn't enlist in the Xeon military. He's a civilian who was dragooned into service. So I'm really curious how, slash if, these tensions will play out. Like, this is familiar territory for Gundam. See the white base. You have this unlikely crew of civilians and military personnel. They come together to form a family. I know Prochno has thoughts about the Xeon High Command. I hope to hear about them. But even if I don't hear about them, I'm I, the colonel's there. Like, conceptually, this is a smart idea. It's not uncommon in war, either. This is really early in the war, too. What This is like January, it's not New Year's Day, but it's before the 17th, because that's the Battle of Loom, if I recall correctly. So this is still early January, yeah. very beginning of the war. Um, But it's not uncommon for just civilians to get conscripted or just asked to participate or just to uh, give to war efforts. You know, the um, I forgot the fellow's first name, but the guy who invented the Garan. He was just a Canadian guy. He was like, I'm just going to make a gun, and I'll get some money for it. And obviously he has direct interests in the war, but so slightly different. But yeah, it, it will be interesting to see just how a civilian, I guess not really a civilian, but someone who definitely doesn't want to be there on a personal basis, and how that will play out for them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up earlier about that we're really early in the war. Because when when I first started watching this, and I was kind of more in autopilot mode. I was like, oh, yeah, we're deep into the one-year war. Zeon's fucked. We had to get transport ship captains and like enlist them into the war effort. Like, if you're going to make your World War II comparisons, late in the war, Nazi Germany was like, all right, civilians, we're going to create a separate unit because we're running out of men called the Volkstrom, the People's mm-hmm. Army and just draft a bunch of civilians in. And if you're listening at home at this very moment, it's a giant robot FM the first time, and you're like, okay, they're watching Igloo, and they're rattling off military history about Nazi Germany. No, we're not one of those podcasts, but it's just one of those (laughs) things I know from studying some of this stuff in college. Mm. Um, But yeah, we're really early in the war. But that also points, that like correlates to something we learn early on in First Gundam, because we know Xeon is pretty stretched thin. I remember a conversation early on in First Gundam. Char is talking to Dozel. Dozel's about to go to some military ball, and he's like, Char, I really don't want to give you these mobile suits. We don't have we don't have them to spare. I don't want to give them to you. I'm going to, but just keep in mind, we don't have unlimited resources. And that's basically, like, on, from a mil- from military technical standpoint, that's one of the reasons why they lose the war. They become too stretched thin. Like butter spread over too much bread. One of my favorite Tolkien quotes. (laughs) Suddenly, the screen goes glossy as Special Operations Lieutenant Commander Monique Cadillac arrives on the bridge. I've heard about what happened in the battle earlier. For the independence of Xeon, there are times to expose rust buckets like this ship to danger. Obviously, her labeling the Jotunheim as a rust bucket doesn't sit well with Prochno. However, he'll have an opportunity to address that later if he so chooses, because after a quick introduction, Monique announces that she'll be joining the crew of this ship, 
Same with Lieutenant Washia of the Technical Evaluation Division, who sidles up behind her. So I'll read Monique Cadillac's profile. PM Stanek, you had a thought? I was just going to say, are you guys ready to buy the ATI Radeon card that she's going to sell you? Because that's what <laughs> that's what she looks like too. She looks like it was Ruby was the name of the character. Um, that's a good pull. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yes, it could, I that's, could imagine her right on the box of the you know, ATI Radeon, you know, thirty four hundred or whatever it would have been at the time. Uh, my my, I had an AMD card that had just Jason Voorhees's face on it, but with like <laughs> light coming out from behind it. But also on the hockey mask, there was just like spikes. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> You never forget your first graphics card. I don't know if I've ever bought a graphics card separately. I'm that kind of guy. Mm. I was never good on a tactical level. Unlike my two co-hosts here, I don't have an engineering bone in my body, so I'd always buy ex- two expensive computers new back when I was into PC gaming, which was a very long time ago. So the her profile in the booklet reads... Quote, an officer who belongs to the headquarters and receives orders directly from Commander-in-Chief Girin Zabi. As a supervisor of the testing for prototype weapons, she's assigned to the 603 Technical Evaluation Unit. She is not welcome, she's not well-liked by the people on board the Jotunheim, partly due to her position, but also because of her brash tongue. She is 25 years old. End quote. Monique has real gonna be tried at Nuremberg vibes. She's she's definitely the true believer in this mismatch crew, which, after reading her profile, makes sense given her connection to Giran. My guess slash hope is that Oliver and Monique are going to clash ideologically with maybe not Monique fully buying into just how cruel and evil the leadership of the uh, principality of Zeon is but maybe just understanding that they don't have her or her crew's best intentions at heart um, obviously we see, we see this with Oliver's reaction to Operation British we see this a bit later too because Monique is more concerned with her squad being forgotten by the higher ups and not being prioritized like the mobile suits divisions and she's very concerned about this and is very upset by this. And Oliver is more upset by Heme, who dies, and a few other things as well. Even though Oliver is also upset that they're kind of passed over. I will say, if I had to guess, um, this episode, this first episode, is pretty unconcerned with the political status quo. Like, it's interested from a historical perspective, but we don't really get characters hashing this kind of stuff out. It's more interested in the military status quo. So I'm not convinced that these tensions are going to be fully drawn out. And given that this is an Imanishi joint, I'm thinking about 0083 and parts of the origin adaptation, that definitely tracks. I remember a, a pivotal point that happens later on. I don't know if it's episode three or episode six. I want to say I recall this coming to a boil mm. later on, so your hopes may uh, be realized. We shall see. I, I legitimately don't remember, but I do remember someone showing up and it's like, oh, okay. I see what you're trying to do here. It's very obvious, but I see what you're trying to do. So hopefully yeah, that will. The writing's certainly not subtle, but they're laying some groundwork here. Yes. The other I, thing, I do want to. Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, I, I did want to point out real fast that I, I, in my notes, I have that Monique Cadillac is definitely a Gundam name. I'm going to pull that back a little bit because there's, there's nothing in her name that has to do with the genitals or clothing. So, um, but it's definitely a very anime name. Just yeah, by igloo standards, brand. it's the most anime. Yes, absolutely. I was going to say that the way this character is is introduced and it kind of um, like it, you know, emphasizes her appearance, her her cosmetics, her hair, her outfit. It's a very um, it's very kind of cyber new type kind of introduction. You know, I mean, at this point when they're making this, you know, Zeta and Double Zeta are like well in the in the rearview mirror. But I'm thinking of characters like Four. I'm thinking especially of of Charisun from Double Zeta. Um, there's just sort of, uh, and of course, you know, she's brash, right? Uh, the cyber news type characters are often very uh, uneven and outspoken uh, because of w- what's been done to them. I don't necessarily know that Monique is actually a cyber new type or anything, but um, I do think you know there might be some of that energy being channeled here, uh, and certainly you could argue that maybe. Maybe, maybe I, I know the uh, exposure to Giran's ideology has, you know, has affected her mental well-being, which is uh, certainly possible. Oh, the first thing, the first two things that came to mind when I saw her introduction are: a, she's like that other red-haired chick from 0079 that Amro likes. That shows how much I remember from 0079. Uh, um, Madeline, or I no. guess. She, no, she was no. a captain. Woody's Woody's wife. Yeah, why do I remember Woody and not? <laughs> why do you remember Woody? <laughs> I talked about this before. It's the Toy Story thing. Yeah. Ah. Uh, but I also noticed that they do the Star Trek thing when they do a close up on a woman's face and they just put like that ten percent Gaussian blur on it. Yeah. Because when she's coming towards the screen, she flicks her hair and then it suddenly blurs out and it's like, aha! <laughs> I know that trick. That's that's the trick, and obviously this this CG model is not unattractive. Like it's not an ugly design for the woman, but the, it's an easy way to take handsome women in 1960s television and you know put some beer goggles on the audience. Yeah, this is very common with like from the golden age of Hollywood, introducing a traditionally attractive female character, and the screen just goes glossy as shit. Hmm. PMC, I have the name up. I had a feeling you looked it up too. No, I'm trying. I, I I'm not coming up with a query. What's your name? Matilda. Matilda. All right, I was close. Ah, uh, yes, I was close. I knew it started with M. Matilda. Thank you, Brad Swale. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't want to. Even though the show forgot about him, I don't want to forget about him. Hidito Washia. Uh, I'm quoting the uh, his profile in the booklet. An officer who belongs to the Technical Evaluation Division, he is considered to be somewhat of a fascist. Fa- uh, yeah, uh, PMC. How do you pronounce that word Fascious. again? Fascist. Fascist. I can't speak. Fascist. Yeah, I'm not even gonna try. It's one of those words that you bump on. And a loose character. He is 23 years old. Uh, voiced by June Fukuyama. Yeah, can you believe Lelouch this guy himself. is Lelouch? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just I just see him and I want to bully him immediately. It's all I can think about. In the notes, I'm making his profile just gigantic. He's gonna take his mm. lunch money. This guy has expendable written all over him too. I hope so. 
<laughs> Ooh. Them's fighting words. What? Do you think the, the Hidato, the Washia fanboy is going to come out and get me, huh? The Washia fandom? Only Washia fans understand? <laughs> you be cornered at Otakon yeah. by the 603. I know. Brought full in for regalia. against Washia. As if insulting, the captain's ship wasn't enough of a faux pas. Monique questions his leadership. Nice to meet you, Captain, she says, holding out her hand to complete the introductions. Or should I say, commensurate, Captain Martin Prochno. The captain begrudgingly shakes her hand. Immediately after, Oliver, naive as ever, announces that the gang's all here. The 603rd evaluation unit is now complete. Cut to a flashback when Oliver was assigned to the 603 by his engineering department commander. Now that we have decided to wage war, his superior says, we must deploy new weapons to the battlefront as soon as possible. For that, our pressing need is to test out prototype weapons in live combat. He then apologizes for sending someone so young into war before referring to the 603 as a witch's brew. Before he dismisses Oliver, he shows him the weapon he'll be working on. Oliver looks at the schematics, awestruck. This guy is German as fuck. You know, post, post-verse Gundam, Xeon commanders are stereotypically portrayed as stereotypical Germans, um, often in a slightly more cartoonish way than how some of the other characters are portrayed. <laughs> See Captain Von Helsing from 0080. This dude, Albert Schacht, apologies for mispronouncing and botching his last name, is cut from the same cloth. He's got his Prince Nez, he's got his tight collar, he looks like a Prussian field commander. Obviously, the reasons for this are intentional, even though the fandom sometimes misses the point here. Like, mm. these, this inspiration was there from the beginning. Obviously, it was a Tomino decision too, but like Okawara wanted to imbue the Xeon suits with the German feel. And Yaz wanted to give the Xeon uniforms more traditional coloring, hoping to evoke the image of pre-war Germany. So that is very intentional. Of course, when you're talking about the Principality of Xeon and under Giran's leadership, it's very fascistic intentions. I mean, he very explicitly says he wants world domination. Um, it's not too hard to understand why they chose this aesthetic choice to represent Xeon. Actually, I really like this flashback. Just not okay. It sets up, you know, the the point of the show. But I like the uh, the whole "we need new weapons as fast as possible" is so very just real war like. Uh, true for every nation in World War II, but especially true uh, for Nazi Germany at the time, uh, and triply so late in the war. There's not necessarily any desperation here. Yet, as we will see, I think in the the second uh, set of three episodes, some, some real desperation starts setting in with the uh, the new and invented mobile suits they make. Uh, but it's it, I still get that same kind of vibe where it's like we have to win this war. Let's just throw everything at the wall and see what, what sticks. And if it doesn't stick, try again. Um, 
And it also comes up with just how, and we'll get to this later on, but how the uh, the canon, who's I just can never say its name, um, it just gets disregarded at the end. Um, again, we're not that type of people. We're not that type of podcast. But uh, or just read about how um, Hitler and his engineers butted heads on the STG forty four, the uh, intermediate cartridge firing uh, assault rifle from World War Two. There's actual historical documents about like you know, hey, we're going to present this to you. Do you want us to go with it? No, cancel it immediately. And the engineers go, well, we're going to keep working on it anyway, and they keep working on it. And they present it again and back and forth just to make more weapons. So I, I, I dig again. That's another part of just another part of the whole of MS Igloo that I really like. That's just like it's testing. It's engineering. It's wartime engineering. It's, it's good. Yeah. If you, in the nineties and early two thousands, if you ever stayed up late enough and turned on the history channel, chances are you stumbled on a documentary about Hitler's last days or <laughs> the weird ass shit. Those German engineers were trying to cook up in their labs. These like doomsday weapons that would like use the pa- like the power of electricity to create like some sort of mythical m- m- Mjolnir to like vanquish the invading ally forces. <laughs> There is like uh, a kind a- of um, like th- this guy shocked. I feel like he has kind of almost the because I'm so much thinking of everything in Zeon having been repurposed from something else, and so much true of the of the Jonheim. Uh And it, like this guy kind of has almost the feeling of like a professor playing at being an officer because he's an engineering officer, right? He's, you know, he's the it was like rear admiral, I think, was he identified as, and uh, and like there's definitely an, an element of like, yeah. Well, you'll be excited for this, you know. <laughs> Here, have have you know? And he brings up the screen to the side, and which is like a, a good little bit too, where where he has the screen up and he's like, "Oh wow, big gun, wow we." <laughs> There's a line yeah. in this flashback: uh, "The value of technology, it's something to be decided by human beings." And in my notes, right next to that sentence, in all caps, is "Okay, trays." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that definitely has Trey's energy. But yeah, I do kind of like how it's just like, oh, we're just, we're just, you know, it's just, it's just technology, right? And we need to be the ones to decide if it's useful or not. You know, Nary, does anyone bring up during that scene, you know, what this technology is being used for? You know, what its purpose is? It's just, it's just a cool gun. It's just a cool piece of engineering named after a, a Norse snake. Like well, no. <laughs> There's obviously more to it. Um, but right, it's just, it's 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 something worth noting. Again, you kind of gotta have that, especially since he's higher up in all of this. It's it's something to note that how pulled away and disconnected from the people using the people who are going to die and using things to make other people die don't really care about it as long as they can see advancements and get praise from their higher ups. TLDR war is bad. It's true. And it's always the grunts who suffer the most, the young people in the trenches, which is something I think an idea, at least in episode one Igloo flirts with. Um, I'm curious if it's going to double down on that messaging. I think the show believes that, 
but I want to see that represented a bit more clearly. Back in the present, Prochno, Monique, and Oliver watch as technicians assemble the Jormungand. It's a serpent that shoots enemy capital ships from out of their range. Its power is so great that it can shoot down the Federation Forces Magellan-class ships with one hit. This design rules the elementary school-aged boy in me just wants to like see <laughs> 50 of these in space just firing and like blowing up vessels like little suckers. This is such a glass cannon. Like I I I mean I'm sure this gets into the whole point of maybe the 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 outcome which is the the highly maneuverable thing is the thing that's better. But like you know, it, like cuz like thinking about this like comparing it to its to its um historical i guess analog the uh, the v3 uh cannon from world war ii and like all right well at least there it was you know it was like a little harder to move around you know you could kind of come up with a stationary cannon, put it on land fire it off but you're in space you know and like your whole thing is you're going to assemble it it doesn't really i don't i i, I guess it has some way of aiming right they like readjusting the position of the canning fine-tuning mm-hmm. the aim but i don't think it's gonna i don't it's gonna travel in that configuration fully assembled and so i'm just like who was this for like are you just gonna really hope i mean obviously what kind of what happens is that you have to hope your enemy stays still enough or like comes straight at you uh but you you know your your gunner died anyway I and mean, we're gonna that's getting to later but i'm just like the the design just seems like very i i can see why this was like maybe like we did this as a joke i, I could see that this is on high command <laughs> see the rts mind in me goes well if you just place a few of these strategically it could really deal some devastating damage from a defensive standpoint so i'm imagining all my units um sprawled out in space and i've got a few of these strategically placed to shoot down capital ships but the vulnerability to bring up is a good point pmc you know, although i do want you now you have me wondering if something like this ever showed up in uh, i mean obviously it couldn't have shown up on saturn gear and greed but i do think there's some psp gear and greed um, maybe this showed up. Yeah. Who knows? That's a great choice for a simulator game if and when that PSP game gets a translation. So the Jormungand does have a profile page in the booklet. I'm not going to read it because it's a little long and Oliver goes over it. And I'll read what he has to say in just a minute. Oliver reviews the technical details with his superiors. The secret of its destructive power is a fusion plasma beam. Its power output is 150,000 kilowatts. It fires a plasmid using a 200-meter cannon barrel in which the assisting injectors are installed. The max effective range when Minofsky particles are dispersed is about 300 kilometers. Its destructive power is expected to be more than 10 times that of a large vessel's cannon, even at the borderline range. Listening to Oliver's monologue, unbeknownst to the speaker, Heme suddenly makes his presence known and expresses his approval. I'm counting on you, engineers. Classic gunnery officer banter. <laughs> Their conversation... Is... Oh, go on, Andy. Uh, this is something I had brought up uh, much <laughs> earlier. And this, a scene like this is exactly what draws me to MS Igloo. Just seeing engineers talk about and describe the tech specs of equipment, even if it's all complete BS. 
Uh, and uh, by the way, 150,000 kilowatts is a lot. It's quite a little bit of energy. Yeah, all that, all those tech specs right went right over my head. In in the <laughs> dub, for whatever reason, uh, so there's this Odex English dub, and uh, you know it's like they're they're trying to match the the lips on screen a lot, and so they they change words around. Most of them are pretty fine. Like I, I did really nothing, no big issue. Most of the dub script. Uh, Oliver's lips are not on screen uh, at this point when he's doing through most of the tech uh, tech description, but for whatever reason. They say 150,000 megawatts instead of kilowatts, and I don't know why, but like, damn dog, that's even, that's, that's just, you're going to melt yourself that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a strange editorial choice to make on the spot. Steven, do you know what the difference between kilowatts and megawatts is? All right. So, no, I do not, kind sir. One of the fundamental things when you, when you, when you do engineering in, in college, one of the things that gets drilled into you and that you will probably never, ever, ever, ever forget are your metric prefixes. Mm-hmm. That's very important. And so a uh, kilo, uh, like a kilometer, you know, like, like kilowatt you would see normally, that's times 10 to the third. So, you know, a kilometer is a thousand meters. And then mega is times 10 to the sixth. So it's another three zeros. So it'd be, it would be a million. Um, yeah, that's 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 you know all that really is. The, typically, okay. you memorize the ones that are every three. Those are kind of the useful ones. You don't really, <laughs> you don't do every like no one no one uses deca or centa uh, for mm. you know uh, any any electrically. I, I mean, so I was electrical engineering. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking of farads and usually for me it was usually on the other side were more important. I I remember more of the small ones than I do of the big ones. Right, and where I work in power delivery, all I know are the big ones nowadays. But the weird thing is, though, because same thing, when I was in school, it was always, you remember the three, because that's when you have to change, you know, nomenclature. So it's mm-hmm. kilowatt all the way up to a 1,000. So when you get to a 1,000 kilowatts, or it's a, however many of the next amount of kilowatts there are, I guess it's 1,000. 1,000 kilowatts, yeah, and then it's one megawatt. That, yep. And a thousand megawatts is one gigawatt. But in the industry, everything is in kilowatts, no matter what. And so it could be, you know, 10,000 kilowatts. And it's like, this hurts me to my soul, but it has to be this way because it's the industry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that is, that's what it comes down to though. Ultimately, whatever, you know, if, if, if they all decided that they were going to, you know, write everything in nanometers, well, all right, this is my life now. (laughs) Half this is going right over my head. Come on, mm. nano is just times ten to the negative ninth, Stephen. I studied film, literature, <laughs> See, and history. This is revenge for me because usually, where it's like Stephen's like, "Oh, well, you know, I saw this French art film in college that this really reminds." I'm like, "Well, I don't know what the fuck this is." <laughs> <laughs> That's an attack on all fans of French New Wave. And here I'm kind of in between being the the electrical engineer who has also seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So <laughs> as a that's a classic um, film studies, like the topic of a film studies class, a film a, a screening, because you would go to screenings after the class to watch the movies. Okay, classic. You see, I just watched it because of the connection with you know the legacy of Amadeus from Big O. But, that know, movie goes down real easy, even for 
people who aren't cinephiles just because the imagery is so potent and interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. More of a Fritz Lang fan myself, but still, Mm -hmm. yeah, Caligari's good. I took a whole class on Fritz Lang. He had he so he emigrated to the United States for obvious reasons as the 20th century wore on, and he in America made some really interesting film noir, like really classic mm. film noir, a lot less expressionistic than some of his earlier German films, but fun nonetheless if you're into that sort of stuff. I'll have to remember that. To bring it back to what PMC said originally, Fritz Lang stars as himself in Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt, which is a beautiful film. Speaking of Technicolor that came out in the early 60s, it's French as fuck, so it's like pretentiously philosophical and poetic, and it deals with human nature and love and people smoking cigarettes while discussing these things. But even if that's not your jam, just Technicolor widescreen shot in these beautiful locations from the 1960s, the fashion's on full display beautiful Mm. their conversation though is cut short by the sudden blaring of alarms they receive a message from a Xeon ship part of a nearby fleet ordering them to change course from the Jotunheim's windows they see a space colony being guided into Earth's atmosphere what's this about? Oliver shouts Operation British Monique says 72 hours until it will be dropped on Earth. Oliver questions the moral implications of such a devastating tactic, but is rebuffed by Monique, who justifies the actions on tactical grounds. This is the wrong way to engage in the war, Oliver tells himself. All right, so just taking episode one at face value in isolation, I have a little trouble buying Oliver's scruples with Operation British. Like, I understand he's young. He's human. We're all full of contradictions. Dude's building a deadly space laser. He can't be completely oblivious to the destruction it will cause. Now, obviously, targeting civilians is the line in the sand that upsets uh, that upsets Oliver. Again, like I mentioned before, I'd be a little bit more on board for this if we saw Oliver grappling with this more. But as is, we do get so little time for characterization in Igloo. Just because, remember... If you were watching this in the Bondi Museum, in order to get butts in the seats and to show off all this new tech, you want to show some space battles. I mean, you have also, when you're analyzing and evaluating Igloo, you have to take that into account, just the medium it was presented in. Um, it wasn't originally intended as a home video release. It was intended as almost like a, a tech demo of sorts. Like when you go to a planetarium and you see a 20-minute short on space, your expectations are probably going to be a little different than watching a three and a half hour Martin Scorsese film in your local theater. To that point with Oliver, uh, I think it's appropriate. His kind of characterization in this moment, because um, it's appropriate to have him be naive enough to think that war is something that has rules and can be civilized as long as everyone follows those rules. And it kind of comes back. Uh, well, it, it opposed. Well, I'm. I wrote out these notes, and it's like, what was I actually trying to say here? It's like high school all over again. Well, like I do appreciate that he's just like, well, this, yeah, the civilians thing, obviously, because you know, dropping it on Earth. Um, 
Well, yeah, it makes sense. He's like, well, no, there, there is a right way to do this. We need to fight combatants. We need to engage with people who are engaged in war. Like, obviously. But. It kind of comes in line with what he was saying earlier. It was like, you know, uh, how, what was it? Uh, from here, Earth, is Earth really that this space, I guess? You might have to cut some of this out because I'm just rambling now. Uh, <laughs> I don't worry about Andy. It's cl- it, it'll, it'll come together. Don't worry about it. Okay. No, I, yeah, I believe you. Uh, I'm saying here that it, it seems like it opposes his sense of space noid pride. Not so much that he's afraid of the consequences of what it'll do to Earth, but how it makes uh, them look using the colonies to do damage. Right? If we're just having a good you know, jolly old space battle between combatants. That's one thing. If we're using, you know, the space colonies to do, you know, harm to the earth, then that's, that's a little more vulgar. I'd imagine is the way he's kind of seeing it. You know, why, why use this, this symbol of space, noid pride to cause harm. We can just, we can just use people. We can just use ideas to cause harm rather than these symbols. And to, to Oliver's credit, I mean, he does he does specify, you know, where were the 20 million people living on that space colony? Like, that is, <laughs> you know, he, he is particular about, you know, the population that he, he is concerned about. Um, because at, at this point, you know, I mean, it's kind of a question is dropping a space colony on Earth would probably do harm. Do they know how much? You know, obviously they meant for, well, also they meant for it to fall somewhere else. It ended up in Australia, rip Australia. Um, you know, there's, you know, a lot, a lot to, I, I, I wonder if we'll revisit this later, you know, the whole idea of the colony drop. I'm, I'm curious if that'll happen. Um, yeah, I, I, I was wrestling this with this too, Steven, in terms of like, well, you are, you know, you, you are in the process of making a, like a super laser space weapon and it's not quite like, it's not quite the solar system, which is, you know, is the name of the, the Federation weapon that ultimately gets brought out at the end of the one. Oh war. Yeah. Um, so it's not quite, not quite up to that, uh, <laughs> that level of space laser. That's a pretty good space laser though. What do you think is going to happen with that? Uh, it, it is interesting to me. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, this was impersonal. It was an impersonal episode in terms of historical figures. It is also impersonal, uh, in that I don't think, I don't think we see any Federation soldiers. And I think the only time we hear Federation voices are when the ships are lining up and they talk about how we hold all the cards. I think you hear Federation lines then. For the most part, you are not getting Federation perspective on the Battle of Loom. No, Uh, absolutely not. Yeah. And so I I think that too kind of, you know, it, it, it kind of keeps it away from thinking too much about, I guess, what the... What the ordinary, like even even war fought on good terms, you know, on keeping away from civilian populations, etc. Like, what is every, when one of those ships blows up, when one of the Salamis or the Musai blows up, what's going on there? Yeah, and conceptually, I really do think Andy, you bring up a lot of good points here. I agree. I just want a little bit more of them working oh, sure. through it verbally. Right, I guess. Right. Like, I, I want, first off, I want to see a rec room. I want to see a rec room on the ship, period. But I can imagine them in the rec room or, I don't know, in the mess hall, lighting a cigarette, just like working through the implications of what a colony drop entails, which, by mm-hmm. the way, we see in vividly 
horrific detail in Origin 5, I think, when they gas the colony and everyone inside oh. before they drop it. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up Rec Room. So it's like when they introduced that at the end of Wing, where they just had all of the meteor pilots oh, yeah. just in a Rec Room together. It's like, this This is what I want. You know, this Wu is Fei's the Star Trek floating. vibe. Say what? Wu Fei is just like floating in that frame. Yeah. Like he just like <laughs> took an edible. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of the next generation moment where everyone's just in the Rec Room. And they sit down and they discuss a problem and everyone offers their own uh, solutions to the problem and they discuss each other's solutions to the problem is is this going to work is it what's your real motivation here and this that um you know i was i'm reading through lord of the rings for the first time and a, a friend of mine warned me it's like okay you're in uh rivendell you've got I, I knew where this is going you've got many meetings followed directly by the Council of Elrond. So like 60 or 70, well, I think it's like 60 pages of just people talking. And she told me that. It's like, so, you know, be warned, that's coming up. And I responded just like, oh, good. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. Because that's the stuff I'm, I'm, I always really, really enjoy when it's people solving a problem together. And we get to see all those dynamics eke out and square off and agree and they come to a conclusion so I say all that to say I agree that that is that could have been something really great here just to see people discuss the pros and cons as if that's something you can do about colony drops. And mind you, again, that kind of comes back to what I was saying, though, and what we've all kind of said so far is that MS Igloo is so disconnected where this is happening in and around MS Igloo. So it, it's it's worthwhile to talk about it, but with the media that this was and the story it's trying to tell, would it had actually fit? Who knows? Is there value there? Yes. By the way, Council Rules. Council of Elrond is my favorite part of Fellowship, which is an immaculate book. <laughs> and I'm an, I'm an immaculate film. Real quick, going back to the beginning of the episode, like building on that point, Andy, I would love to... Just, again, it wouldn't work in the context of a theatrical release in a corporate museum, but, like, we have Oliver talking about, like, what it means to him to be a space noid and how he feels that they're being suffocated. Just a little bit more here. I want to see, I want to, like, did he enlist? Did Was he conscripted? I know he is an engineering student, so he probably didn't jump into the military voluntarily, maybe. Um, like I want more information about that. Like what's, what are his thoughts or does he not have any thoughts about it? Just give me a little bit more there. Right. This is a tough line to walk though. First Gundam walks that line too. And sometimes I'm left a little unsatisfied, like the Tomino scripted episode, time be still, which I think, I think is a really good episode. But when you have a bunch of like Xeon soldiers around the proverbial fire pit talking about shit, I want to know what the rank and file thinks about what the zombies are doing. Like, mm-hmm. Because there is a, you know, there's a compelling reason to revolt against the Federation. I want to hear that from the ordinary soldier. So we don't get an episode break per se, but there is a break in the episode. So we're about midway through the episode. Oliver opens up with a bit of diegetic narration. Universal Century 0079, the 15th of January. 
We, of the Principality of Xeon and the Earth Federation, clashed at Side 5, also known as the Loom Province. Loom Battle, as it would be known in history. When the battle began, Xeon set up a clever trap. False information was leaked, saying that we were unsatisfied with the result of Operation British, and were gathering forces at Side 5 in order to initiate a second Operation British. The Federation fleet, which had been stationed at Luna 2, was lured into the battle and into launching an attack. Once the battle was fully underway, the trap would be sprung, crushing the Federation fleet in a two-pronged assault. The time for the final battle and the unveiling of the Jormungand approaches. Soon, the sleeping serpent will bear its fangs. As the Xeon fleet gets into position, Heme and his men prepare the Jormungand. The engineers cheer as scores of green and red warships, Musais and Guazines, pass by. The flagship sends the Jotunheim a message. The result of the fleet battle depends on the vigorous efforts of your fleet and the new weapon. We get a title card. <laughs> but, well, I love Frasier. I'm a Frasier head. And uh, I've had this on my mind since then. And you'll see it if you follow us on Twitter. Um, but <laughs> it goes, the title card reads, In the history of mankind, there has never been a decisive battle in space, let alone a fleet battle. Soldiers make history. And just when I was reading that, I had the Frasier jingle in my head. <laughs> like it was an episode break in an episode of Frasier. PMC, do you have a thought there? No. Oh, I thought you were leaning into talks. No, I I really, I was probably going to make an offhand remark about how I probably haven't watched an episode of Frasier in 25 years. Um, I think I did watch it. There was a time in my life, in my youth, where I would watch sitcoms, I think. Um, I have no memory of any of them. It's such a cozy rainy day show for me. But Andy, I think I cut you <laughs> off before. No, no, it's perfectly fine. I, my only note here about this is that, and I quote, intertitles are so based. Yes. That's not even a title card. That is an intertitle. And we, True. we were just talking about Fritz Lang. Um, but that was, that feels so, honestly, that feels kind of appropriate for like a museum type film to have an intertitle in the year of our Lord, 20, uh, 2004, or I think that's when MS Igloo came out, but it just like, that's, that's, that's a little extra. And I was very glad to see just an intertitle before the battle of loom. It does give it a very historical feel, which is something mm-hmm. Yaz is really good with and does very well in the origin and that the origin adaptation does really well as well. This also did make me think of the end of the origin OVA because that's the part where General Revel loudly declares there are no soldiers in Xeon. Cue mic drop. I just I actually just watched that again. <laughs> Once in position, the Xeon and Federation fleets stare each other down at a distance, like middle schoolers at a dance. Now that Jormungand is operational. Heme orders his men to return to the ship. He'll be able to manually operate it himself. The Federation fleet lets loose an opening salvo. The Xeon fleet responds in kind. The no man's land between the armies is lit up as opposing battleships trade fusillades. The Battle of Loom 
has begun. So thinking about Loom from the vantage point of 2023, I can't help but note that for early Gundam fans, the Battle of Loom must have been like the Clone Wars was for Star Wars fans. Loom is alluded to in First Gundam. It's never shown. Of course, there's that line in A New Hope. You fought in the Clone Wars with my father. Of course, if you were so interested, your mind could run wild with the possibilities of what the Clone Wars was. So both things I feel, especially like in hardcore sections of the fandom, both had a very elevated reputation. And that's one of the reasons why I think so many OVAs like Igloo and The Origin feature it. And I'm sure it shows up in a bunch of side story manga and novels too. All right, I have some thoughts about the CGI battleships, all of which is positive. Like, I'm, <laughs> I, I find all of the CG pretty endearing. I'm, I'm somewhat down on the CGI in Igloo when it comes to depicting people, just because, and it's charming, yes. Everyone emotes so goofily, and either the movement is too stiff or too unnatural. It's at times distracting, even though I, as a 35-year-old who's deep in the shit, find it endearing. Mm-hmm. However... I really like how these ships are animated. I think this battle rules. I may actually prefer it to the Origin 6, even though it's not as tactically complex, which I also enjoy. Um, If you're keeping score at home, Loom in the Origin shows up in Volume 1, the very end of Volume 5, because that's when Loom is really starting to heat up, and then Volume 6. And the animation is much more kinetic, but I feel like in igloo the ships have a real weight to them that really sells the scale of the engagement i think the sound design is really on point Mm. i don't know there's something about 2000s cgi that really nails the physicality of objects like to put it in very basic terms toy story has trouble depicting human beings it can depict the toys really well and the the weight or lack of weight of a toy in your hand and also thinking about other things that came out in 2000, the, the 2000s, like you have Clone Wars too, the TV show. And I couldn't help but think about, there's an early arc, like the first arc of the show. Um, it centers on the pursuit and destruction of a separatist ship. It's called the Malevolence. The characters, especially in season one of Clone Wars, look awful. Like Obi-Wan just is just like a stiff wooden board. Same with the other characters. The Malevolence, though, it's this hulking battleship, and the the sound designers at ILM really just nail the sound and scale of a ship of that size, and just really sells space battles, period, even uh, separate from the visuals, which I still think are pretty compelling. And I think the same is true with Igloo. I just really like how these ships are animated. And I feel like that's... You can only be done this way with technology that's over 20 years old. And honestly, I, I I do agree. There at the end of the opening battle, when the Federation ship kind of reorients itself and takes off, that was very quick and very weightless. I understand it's in space; there is no weight, but that was that one kind of set me up to be like, "Oh no, are they going to have it just be like, you know, goofy gotcha game CG?" But then you're right. During the Battle of Loom, there is a considerable amount of weight in those ships, especially how they explode. 
like even just the parts and the, and the the detonation of their munitions or whatever, even that explosion has a certain momentum to it, and that's that's quite good. And then yeah, just how they the the camera being on top of the cannon, uh, the turret or in front of it or at you know isometric angles to it, yeah, they, a lot of work was put into that battle, and it does have a distinct. Weight is the word I keep coming back to, but there's also just a, a keen sense of, I don't know, there, there's even just the direction of it is good. And I'll bring up G Savior again, our very favorite, you know, Gundam production. The the final battle in G Savior has a lot of that similar weight and energy to it. And I remember just like when um, I don't know when the when the G Savior and Oh, whatever the bad guy suit is, that's not a mobile doll. When they land on the the um the colony and all the glass breaks and kind of shoots up around them, it's like that's good. This is this is attention to detail that you can't really put the time and money into for traditional in animation, and it's also not something that has the same kind of lumbering feel to it as things get refined later on in the decade and definitely in this decade yeah i would definitely uh just follow up to say that as much as i was uh dunking on some of the features of human beings in this production uh, the one thing i would highlight with the ship combat is the maneuverability of the ships like there's a there's a bit in early in the episode where they try to animate oliver may doing a flip on the bridge and it doesn't look good <laughs> he, he looks like uh, like a <laughs> like a wet towel being spun in the air <laughs> and um but in contrast i think the way the ships are animated and that includes both the the moose to salamis encounter as well as the battle of loom um the ships are very much presented as a solid unit that uh that maneuver that, that flip around that the turrets turn um, I, I think all that stuff uh, comes across well. I think I'm less warm on the explosions. I don't know why so many of the explosions are so blue. Maybe that's just the choice, and that just doesn't work for me as much. Um, but I really do like the ship maneuverability. They don't make them like this anymore. They really don't. Even like space battles in PS2 games, like Xenosaga has some sick... Uh, ship to ship combat or i guess like space alien to ship combat mm-hmm. and you just don't get that anymore like the, the weight to these yeah I, I wonder i mean i guess i don't i, I i've never really been because uh, there's a whole universe of space sim out there right i mean there's certainly many star wars uh when i saw like space flight sims uh the x x2 x3 series uh, other games like i've not really played any of those the closest i've gotten is playing a few demos of colony wars games now that's of course it's a ps1 series um, but you know there is really a, a whole universe of those out there. Actually, relevant to your interests, uh, Stephen, uh, friend of the podcast, Dylan Dev D, had posted a uh, the intro to ooh ah crap Homeworld or Homefront. It was a, a space sim game that had a Campbell Lane narration intro. Homeworld. Homeworld. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, he and pops that, that, for that series. That's that. I hear great things about that video yeah. game series. Again, that's another space sim series. I, I definitely think um, I would be curious if anyone listening has like favorite, you know, space sim picks that they they would go to. I know I, I I've already mentioned a few 
Homeworld X2 that I know people really like. R.I.P. Campbell Lane. If he was still with us and on Cameo, I would consider like just shelling out some money to get him to do like an opening narration for Giant Robot FM. Favorite narrator <laughs> of all time. I might I might have to go with Tony J. I I was watching someone play uh the Hunter the Reckoning game today and had a Tony J narration. I was like, mm, god damn that hits good. <laughs> you can make the argument in some respects that modern dubs, again, in some respects, are a little bit more competent than their nineties and early two thousands counterparts. Obviously um less goofiness. But there's something about like old school dub narrators that just hits different oh absolutely that was the you know peak kind of movie trailer you know time and so that obviously kind of seeped into uh, narrators and other mediums but before we started talking specifically about narrators and old dubs uh this is way off in left field (laughs) i'll make it short uh, there was, of course, there's the Magical Girl show Pretty Cure. And in, oh, golly, it was 2013 and 2014, I want to say, uh, it got an American dub called Glitter Force. And I was going to watch it anyway because that was been on the books and been rumored for years and years at that time. And it's it's a strange little beast because it's a 2012 or 2013 adaptation of a Japanese anime that moves and acts and speaks like something from 1993. It is just absolutely haywire and everything's way too fast and it's stilted and everyone's just there for their paycheck. But that is what makes it so good is that it is just absolutely unhinged early kind of mid nineties dub energy the whole way through. That's I'm I'm so glad like Discotech is around to preserve that. Uh, I was uh, when I was watching the Gal Gygar dub, which isn't a '90s dub, but it's a 2000s dub. Infamously, they only dubbed Media Blasters only dubbed half the show because of disinterest from fans, or I guess the general population buying DVDs at the time. It was a late DVD release in all respects. But anyway, I love going back to that time and listening to those dubs. There's an energy to it that you just can't quantify. And as a result, I started moving through the show slower when I was listening to the Japanese dub. Just no no shame on those great voice actors, but there's just, for me, and when nostalgia's involved, there's no comparison. Hmm. I'll turn this frying pan into a drying pan. Per- that's perfect. <laughs> it's five o'clock in the morning. You're watching an episode of Sailor Moon on public access or something. One of the scalar, Sailor Scouts looks directly at you and gives some advice about how to properly eat breakfast before you go to school. Again, just hits different. <laughs> Zoomers will never know. Watching the battle from the bridge of the Jotunheim, Monique, recognizing that the fleet is keeping its distance, concludes they're counting on the long-range capabilities of the Jormungand. She tries to mollify Heme, who just wants to go guns blazing, by telling him to wait for orders. 
Predictably, this doesn't satisfy their chief gunnery officer, who goes ahead and fires the Jormungand. A massive laser streaks across space, but misses its mark. I'm also really glad, I thought for a minute, not that I'm really concerned about this, but I thought they were going to retcon Igloo just a bit, because... Originally, and I was kind of duped into this by the writer. I was like, oh man, this laser is so important. I guess this laser is going to determine loom. I was like, ah, yes, that's a, that's a little, that's some smart writing there. Um, I was duped just like the crew of the Jotunheim is duped. I mean, it, the episode title is pretty explicit, I feel. Why do you think the serpent vanishes? I wasn't, I wasn't playing the long game, PMC. Right. I wasn't See, thinking you that know me, I fix it on episode <laughs> titles, so. That usually comes after I watch the episode when I start my notes. But also, just knowing the style of Imanishi's writing, I wouldn't be I wouldn't have been surprised in that alternate reality when Igloo plays it fast and loose with continuity, which isn't always a bad thing. Um, but here, I feel like it wouldn't have been the best decision creatively. The battle then begins to take an unfavorable turn for the Zeeks, as several Musais sink. Reacting to the changing fortunes, Oliver and Hidito take off in a shuttle to provide Heme with necessary observation data. Before they can get there, they receive an alert. Dozens of Zaku-2 squads blast into view. One in particular, a custom red Zaku, through Morse code, announces that he's taking charge. An attack using mobile suits is a part of the plan. The unnamed and unmasked villain, not villain, sorry, <laughs> pilot announces. I gotta say, and I wasn't expecting this, I did pop a little for this. And also keep in mind, stuff like this usually doesn't get me. I got really frustrated <laughs> with the origin for its more prequelitisy tendencies especially the anime adaptation like when the black tri stars call char a variable red comet i just want to throw up <laughs> and i also thought some of the first gundam characters were a little shoehorned into the narrative um characters i like but um i don't like their appearance in the origin quite as much characters like mirai and ryu but Char's cameo is surprisingly restrained here like we never see him only azaku we only hear him. Like, he communicates with Oliver via Morse code, which I feel gives the scene a dramatic energy. And it makes sense that he'd show up. I mean, he did sink five battleships in Loom. You're going to depict Loom for the first time. It's like the Simpsons meme. Like, everyone's going to be asking every scene, where's Char? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely was thinking, likewise, about the extent to which this has some sort of prequel element and you know, how would you, I guess, capture the sense of the changing tide of the battle? I I guess this works. I don't know. I I I, I was trying to brainstorm how else would I want I would I want the suddenly changing tide. Because right, that's part of the big narrative of the battle, is that the mobile suits show up, decisively win the combat with the, the fleet of the uh, Federation. And so how do you sort of announce that changing fortune to the people who are kind of being kept in the dark about the plan, really? Um. Yeah, I guess you've talked me into it, Stephen. I don't know. I <laughs> to me this is like very obnoxious. It was like, uh, what are you doing here? 
Why are you get yo shoot get get out of here? <laughs> be be well, gone, fandom bicycle. You'll feel better after you watch the origin because it's ten million times more obnoxious oh, sure, than the yeah, anime yeah, adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it is terrible. Like every, <laughs> so much of the origin is just like unfortunate prequel things. Um, I don't know. I still have fun with it though. Maybe I just need Likewise. to go back and read and watch the origin because I don't really. I didn't get that much of a sense of exactly that. I'm not saying it's not there. Mm-hmm, and sure. I did read all of the origin over like four different Christmases. Because <laughs> it's what, it's just 13, 14 volumes at $20 a piece. That yeah. rings up quite a quite a receipt. Um, <laughs> Stephen's about to point to his collection. <laughs> that's right behind me. 12 volumes, but very close. 12, okay, yeah. But still, that's, that's, that's a considerable. A yeah. Um, but it, it all depends because you you get the, um, you know, remember property title kind of effect when it comes to filling a universe with you know member berries, and there's also just remembering that this universe is filled with things that exist that eventually come together. I'm not really going to be able to say one way or the other on how the origin does that um but i guess i can say i agree it's again this is another example of ms igloo is happening in this universe where the main story happens and yeah char is here we don't see him we don't hear him we just know that that's his mobile suit and then he does what has been mentioned and um Right, it's uh, 0079 is there, but it's largely inconsequential to Igloo. It's simply the fact that it happened, and it has to happen, and it has to respect that. I will say to the the listener out there who might not have listened to our origin coverage, I will say this. We are by far the warmest on Gundam the Origin in the Gundam slash Mecha podcasting ecosystem. I think the manga rules. Oh, absolutely. And I actually am pretty... I'm warmish on the anime adaptation. Um, I really do like those middle chapters a lot, even though there are some prequel tendencies about them. Namely, Char instigating... Char and Garm are kind of like kicking off the one-year war. Outside of that, there's a lot of smart choices when it comes to depicting the rise of the zombies that I really like. And I think that is really necessary from a storytelling perspective. Um, so yeah, if, if you are listening to us for the first time or are listening to us and have yet to check out the origin manga, do so. It is very much worth your time. Oh, I'll, I'll lean in and I'll say, I'll reveal one hot take for Gundam. This one I think I've actually said online before, so I haven't lost any friends yet. The origin is de facto 0079. Is the de facto representation of that story, its characters, and its message. We said kind of the same thing on okay. oh, the pitchforks are already out, but when right. we <laughs> podcasted with Megan about just the manga, we were very warm on the manga. And actually, the guest I know for a fact on Igloo episode three feels similarly. Well, they should because it's it's the right way to feel about it. <laughs> there we go. 
I look, Tomino had three chances to get it right, and even he's not satisfied. So just leave it to his character designer. <laughs> Sidestepping the controversial implications of Andy's <laughs> powerful, powerful remarks. Now look, all our audience, you go out there and you read the 0079 novelization, and you tell me that that man has it straightened out in his head. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> the Zaku pilots, Shar especially, make quick work of scores of Salamis and Magellan-class cruisers turning the tide of the battle. So while this depiction of Loom doesn't have the Ichiro Atano flourishes of the origin version, um, Atano famously storyboarded and directed the opening scene of Origin Volume 1, you can tell DID used Iglo as a template for Loom. The way Shar and Zaku's move through the Federation fleet is similar. Um, that one of my issues with the origin depiction of it is even though the mobile suits move very fast, and that's the point because it's new tech and uh, it's they're running literal circles around this old tech. They there's a weightlessness to them that I'm not partial to in the origin. That is, isn't as present in the Igloo adaptation. Despite the favorable reversal of fortunes, Monique looks distraught. Not only did they have low expectations for us, she laments. They completely ignored us. Hame announces he'll fire this weapon, despite its perceived unimportance. However, before he can pull the trigger, he's thrown off the laser due to a nearby explosion. A damaged Magellan-class ship is heading his way, Oliver points out. Visibly upset, Monique tells the captain that they should abort the mission. Prokno issues the order to abandon the Jormungand. Heme, mortally injured, lines up the targeting reticule on the rapidly descending Magellan-class cruiser. As he does this, talking to Oliver, Heme mourns the changing times. Mobile suits are taking center stage. Firing one last blast, Hemme destroys that Magellan before succumbing to his wounds. As the credits roll, Oliver writes an account of the battle. Experimental anti-ship cannon, Jormungand. Technical evaluation report. During the fleet's decisive battle in Loom, Jormungand fired a total of three shots. One of the shots hit an enemy's Magellan-class vessel and sunk it with devastating force. Its power was astonishing. However, because instructions from the observation post never arrived, the cannon did not have a major impact on the battle. Beyond that, the fact that we lost Lieutenant Alessandro Heme during its first use in combat was a huge blow to the 603 Technical Evaluation Unit. If we had been given as much trust as the mobile weapons that were deployed, there remains the possibility that the result might have been different. Universal Century 0079, 17th of January, Oliver May, Engineering Lieutenant. No matter what battle may take place, the Jormungand will never be seen again.
Hot damn. How about that Odex dub? <laughs> I don't know what Oliver May's accent is supposed to be in, in the Odex dub. It is deeply mystifying to me. Um, <laughs> it is some kind of weird, like, it feels like someone who learned English, like, who maybe grew up not speaking English, but then spent a lot of time in Australia learning to speak English. And so I like, feel there's a little bit of some some English accent in there, some f- dialect flavor. Uh, but like it feels like from out of it feels like talking to like like continental Europeans, like who often have extremely fluent English, where like you can't necessarily detect their their native accent, but you can tell that they aren't from a place that speaks English. Hmm. My friends, we have reached the end of Igloo. Episode one. Andy, I know, I think you chose this episode based on the ending. Do you have any thoughts about Hame's demise? Yes, and I'm I, you, you nailed my thoughts exactly because, as you mentioned earlier, my initial want was to do episode three about the Zuda because the Zuda is awesome. It's, it's a, a Zaku wearing skinny jeans with a 120-millimeter <laughs> anti-material cannon that can take down, you know, entire battleships. And yeah, there's gems in the episode too, and it's there's a lot going on, and I think that that may be a lot of people's favorite episodes. But the thing that a thing about episode one that impressed me a decade ago and still stuck with me now is just how we get to see Hime just have to deal with being um, being a relic. As I mentioned earlier, it may not necessarily be that he was bred for war, that he's got just this, you know, this um, laser focus on that being his, you know, only essence. But it still kind of sucks and it's impactful and it's poignant just to see someone who has their only reason for living being this war, this position, this thing that he knows, and to not just have he himself personally be retired from that position, but to have everybody who's ever been a gunner and ever will be a gunner just be removed from war and from being effective and whether they're fighting for something good or, or bad, still having a way to fight for that. I uh, see. I wrote, you know, it's not, it's not just seeing how war changes because we see it change from, ship to ship combat to mobile suit to ship combat but seeing how it affects the individual uh you know he it's it's not exactly explicit but it is implicit that Hime doesn't have anything now that mobile suits have taken away his quote existence as you alluded to for um the first half of this quote from now on mobile suits are taking center stage at least let me put a period for the end of Gunners. And I just, I don't know, that was something that, of course, it's been also a decade since I've seen 0079. But uh, yeah, I do appreciate this kind of bringing up not just the change of war, but the change of war for the individual. And that's always something I like seeing in Gundam, uh, something I like seeing in war stories in general. And that was something that I really liked about Wing, too. It's just on the... You have the higher-ups and the individual, and who does it affect, and what do they want, and how does that jive, and how does that not work at the same time? Because, again, TLDR, war is bad. 
Well said. <laughs> if only they were that easy. <laughs> Make a TikTok. Hey, guys, war is bad. War is bad. And then, uh, <laughs> and the headlines, global peace has been achieved. <laughs> <coughs> PMC, do you have any concluding thoughts about episode one? I think the, I, I'm interested to see how committed Igloo is to what I would call this sort of, um, I guess, focus on technology. Uh, I would say that maybe the intersection of technology and uh, intelligence tactics in war. Cause certainly, you know, if I were to write like a, like a, what happened in this episode, you know, I would say, you know, some, some goobers got thrown a project, but they were really, at some point, a decision was made elsewhere that they were a distraction really, you know, that they were not the focus of the plan. Uh, and that, and that decision was correct. You know, because this plane, you know, our 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 perspective character and characters were not going to really be that effective. Uh, you know, they they almost got taken out by one like half half working ship. Um, so it it definitely it, it's it it's interesting to see the commitment to again you know not changing the circumstances of of the one year war, uh, and and sort of what that means. Um, you know, cause right now my understanding is that episode two is a, is like a tank episode and episode three is the Zuda episode. Um, and people like the Zuda, it, it seems like a very aesthetic design. Uh, but you know, I also expect a similar commitment to the Zuda not being critical to the one year war. Um, you know, that's not going to thunderbolt it into things. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm, it's, it's interesting to see that. And I wonder what that means. Is, is there going to be a deterioration of our, of our character's, uh, you know, mental state when project after project fails. We'll see. Yeah, that will be interesting to track over time. Overall, with episode one, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would based on the perception in the fandom to Igloo. I'm holding back some commentary. I'm not really holding it back because I haven't really fully forwarded my commentary yet. I'm very curious about political representation in igloo but i have very little to say at the end of episode one and maybe by the end of episode three i will feel similarly just because how much the show prioritizes the cg tech over characters having conversations with each other Um, but that is on my mind that's something i want to track how the show represents zeon how the show represents the federation and that's on my mind and will be on my mind going forward with these two episodes All right, Andy, my friend, tell the good people where they can find you in these trying times. You will be, we haven't publicly announced this yet. You will be on early in Giant Robot FM, on Giant Robot FM in 2024. We haven't announced for what yet. You listeners, you listeners who read the episode titles and are able to predict ahead what will happen, might be able to make a prediction here of what we will be covering early 2024. But we're, gonna, we're not going to formally announce that now. This is all to say you'll hear Andy again on Giant Robot FM before too long. And I'll be glad to be back. Uh, if people want to find me online uh, on Twitter, because I refuse to call it anything else while it is still alive, uh, there's at Engineer, E-N-G-I-N-V-I-R. Uh, the same for Blue Sky. Uh, at engineveer dot whatever all the nonsense is after that you'll find me 
Uh, and then I also have my own personal website, uh, thebigoarchive.com. That's where I have hosted all of my personal uh, collection of Big O stuffs from across the decades that I've been a fan. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to scan them, but I do have some original studio-used scripts I'll need to put up somehow, which is the most recent thing I've pulled in. So if no one's visited yet, just understand that's the level of cataloging we're doing here on this website, and I'm very glad to be the host of it. So it's uh, yeah, just those three places, and you can follow me there and see me talk about the things we're talking about here, mostly robots and also uh, Star Trek and other such trash posting. <laughs> Andy, do you have any collection goals for the new year when it comes to Big O? Like, are there any like big ticket purchases that you still haven't made that you're looking like things that you want to acquire to add to the website or your own personal collection? Oh, you know, there is the like 2001 Max Factory vinyl of Big O. And there's been a couple of them on Yahoo Auctions Japan, but they want like $600 for them. And it's like, I, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't know. That, that That's kind of the last humongous thing. I'd love to have some scripts from season one. It's the only ones I have right now from season two. And season two is still based, but of course season one is better. Um, Yeah, I would love to have more just production stuff mm. you know and uh, maybe some more interviews or maybe get some interviews translated yeah as far as collection stuff I would love I'm always in the mood for like just production stuff especially since I'm just sales have priced people out of sales market by themselves so <laughs> can't really do that anymore unless you find that elusive big O credit card Oh, man. Oh, okay. So that's a perfect answer for it. So along with the credit card, there was also a, a CD, I think, that came with it that had uh, a Big O backgrounds and a Big O screensaver. And there is a fellow on YouTube who has actually uploaded a screen recording of that slideshow, that screensaver, and uploaded it. And I'm like, wow, I should ask this guy if he could rip it for me and give me the information. I put the link to the website down there below and everything. And I did that, and I've heard nothing. And, of course, in the description for the video, he says, do not ask for a download of this. <laughs> I will not do it. I don't, I'm not even on this channel anymore. I'm like, I'm going to try it anyway, just in yeah, case. Yeah, I mean, if there's one person who can, it's the person who runs the big archive site. You're right. I, I think I can allow that one, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining myself with the big O credit card mm -hmm. now and what I would buy with it. Oh, I, was, yeah. I was zoning out there. You would have to, you would have to say Showtime every time you pull it out of your wallet. I understand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Throw it at women and get it caught right in their cleavage, like in uh, <laughs> season two. Yeah, sure promise we'll be playing. Mm -hmm. So, if you've enjoyed this episode of Giant Robot FM, uh, thank you for for making it to the end of it. Of course, this is the beginning of our coverage on the first volume of Emma Sigloo. As we've already alluded to during the episode, we will be 
covering episodes two and three before moving on to rounding out the year of some coverage of the Goran Lagan compilation films. Uh, if you want to support us, best way to do that, of course, is to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, we also have uh, a Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, where you can get some fun goods. We have a patron-exclusive Discord server. We have a bonus podcast series called Moon Race Wireless, where we do two episodes of Turn A Gundam per month. Uh, we are currently 10 episodes into that. The first four episodes of Moon Race Wireless are on the free main feed, so you can just search up like Moon Race Wireless, and you'll find those episodes on the main feed. Check them out. If you like it, go over to patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Check that out. Also, we have another patron-exclusive podcast series called Simulator, where we give Mecha video games the same treatment that we give Mecha anime. Uh, you can find some of those free on the main feed, episodes on Armored Core and Front Mission. Uh, if you subscribe at the Simulator level, you'll get episodes on Assault Suits Falcon. And the other one that we did right before that, which name escapes me, is it, is it, no, we, we released Frame Guide. I feel like there was another one. Anyway, Assault Suits Falcon is definitely there. Gunbuster. Gunbuster gaming episode. That was a good episode. That was a really good episode. We reviewed all the games for Gunbuster. It was really fun. Uh, and so, you know, you check those out. Enjoy those. Uh, hopefully you can find something uh, that you will enjoy from there. I want to give credit to uh, Dwarfest for our graphic design. Credit to Shkin for our art. And credit to Fretzel, hashtag ban Fretzel, for the music that we use. Now, Steven. Oh, you have something that's good. Do you, as I'm breathing through my stuffed up nose, I'm, I can't conjure anything. Do you know, do you know what Oliver May said when he heard that the Jormungand was never used again? I do not. Please tell me. Snake! Snake! Snake!